What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 59 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the EWR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that dispossession and colonisation are both ongoing processes. This episode we're speaking with Dr. Naomi Fisher. Naomi is a clinical psychologist and mother of two self-directed learners. She has a doctorate in clinical psychology and a PhD in developmental cognitive psychology. She combines years of hands-on experience of self-directed education with an in-depth knowledge of how humans develop as well as the opportunities and stresses that they encounter throughout life and how they often cope with them. And today we're discussing Naomi's new book, Changing Our Minds, How Children Can Take Control of Their Own Learning. It's an absolutely fascinating conversation in which we discuss such issues as the circular reasoning of diagnoses within psychology, what supports and what compromises intrinsic motivation, and most importantly, what Naomi has seen happen when young people are given complete control over their own learning. For me, it was an absolutely fascinating conversation, quite challenging at times, as I imagine it will be for many listeners as well. But as always, casting the net wide and exposing ourselves to many ideas within education is always incredibly valuable. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month I'm excited to share that JCE has just released a new book by Becky Allen, Matthew Evans, and Ben White entitled The Next Big Thing in School Improvement. This book explores the treadmill of silver bullets within education, dissecting the barriers that we face when we try to improve things in schools, as well as the levers we can pull in the hope of making positive change. It discusses how little we really know about how schools work, why we know so little about how schools work, the diversity of the classroom, and how this creates an impossible challenge for teachers. This book is a truly ambitious work focusing on some of the biggest questions in education, and I just can't wait to dig deeper. If you're keen to get your hands on the next big thing in school improvement or any other John Cat book for 30% off, then jump onto johncatbookshop.com and enter the code ERRR30 at checkout. That code will also work for my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, a book that Dylan William referred to as, quote, a book that I think every teacher should read. Again, for 30% off any JCE book, just enter ERRR30 at checkout. Or, if you'd like a signed copy of CLT in Action, personally signed by me, and including a personalised message just for you, then jump onto ollielovell.com forward slash book, and you'll see the steps for ordering a signed copy right there. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 59 of the ERRR podcast with Naomi Fisher. Naomi Fisher, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Excellent. Naomi, first question we usually ask people is when you meet someone new and they say, hi, Naomi, what is it that you do? What's your answer? So I'm a clinical psychologist and that's generally what I say. I'm a clinical psychologist, but I also have two children who've never been to conventional school. And through that, I've developed a really strong interest in other ways of learning outside school. And so I'm now an author as well. Fantastic. Big question for you. What do you think is the purpose of education? The purpose of education, I think 
I really think that the purpose of education is for children to have a space and a time to work out how they work, how they learn, how they might fit in with the world and to explore different ideas. So I don't see education in terms of a particular body of knowledge that children have to learn, because I actually think that that kind of thing can be learned later. But I see the kind of real fundamentals of how a person lives in the world and how happy or not they are in their own skin. I think that's much, much harder to learn later. And I guess that comes from my my work as a clinical psychologist, that I see people really struggling with those kind of things later on in life, often people who've done very well with academics at school. So I guess my guiding principle for my children when they started an education was, how can I help them become fully who they are and to become who they want to be? Yeah, that's great. Well, you've kind of alluded to to what I want to ask as first question there, because one of the things that really struck me in your book was you just spent a lot of time highlighting some of the issues with with traditional education as as you see it. So I just wanted to start with a pretty open question, which is, you know, what do you see as some of the main impacts of standard schooling on education? And I'm sure within that you'll touch on what you were just talking on in terms of people learning to learning about themselves and being comfortable in their own skin. So I see that unfortunately what happens with a lot of mainstream education is we take in small children who are full of the joy of life and exploration and curiosity and engagement. And somehow we turn out adolescents and late adolescents who aren't interested anymore and who've learned in the process that they're not very good at things, that they're not, their views aren't very interesting, that what they think doesn't really matter. And they've often also learned to be quite passive. They've learned that education is something that is done to them rather than something that they do. It's not something that's for their benefit. And I know I remember teachers often saying to us when I was at school, you know, this is for you, you know, but it never felt like that. You know, it's you, they'd say it's yourself you're cheating (laughs) if you don't do your homework or if you copy your neighbor, but it never felt like that. And I think the difference that I see with my children and with other self-directed kids is that that never gets taken away. So, you know, young children, they learn because they're interested. And you can see that. And it's actually really hard to stop them doing that. They are just constantly exploring the world, looking out for things, looking for new things, learning new things, bringing in new resources from different people. They're really good at it. Often before they can talk, they're really good at it. And I think my background, so I was a developmental psychologist even before I was a a clinical psychologist. I did a PhD in developmental cognitive psychology. And there was so much about how young children learn. And when I saw my own children, I could see that process happening. But there was never, there is no cutoff in clinical, in developmental psychology. There's no finding that at a certain age, this stops now and it's time for everybody to sit in desks and start learning stuff. You know, that isn't there. But yet school brings that in really quickly. And school prioritizes that kind of learning really quickly. And unfortunately, I think there's just a major clash between children and how they learn best and how they exist in the world and what we offer them in terms of education. And I think we get a kind of fusion between child who comes in, who learns in a particular way, uh, which doesn't really fit with what we offer them at school. I don't know what it's like where you are, but in the UK from four or five, we're offering we're offering academics, really, starting then. Gently at first, but more and more. And the more they can do it, I think there's an irony because the more a child can do, the more we make them listen and be compliant. And so you get these young children who, you know, on the face of it, there's not, they're not 
They're not very skilled. They haven't got much knowledge. There's not much they can do, but they are allowed to be quite autonomous. And if you see, say, a nursery classroom, a good nursery classroom, the kids in it will be really autonomous. They'll be able to choose where they go. They'll choose what they do. The staff will often be very responsive to what those children like and like doing. So they might they have a chance to influence the environment. The older they get, the less influence there is, <laughs> which seemed to me really wrong. You know, why do we have these kids growing up, becoming more capable? And yet it's like the moment we can take away their autonomy because they're a bit more compliant, we do. And I think that really damages them. And then we get to adolescence, which is a period of huge brain development, huge brain change. And there's really exciting new neuroscience research coming out at the moment, which indicates that perhaps adolescence is another period of vulnerability, like very early childhood, where you've got this real potential to learn. But by that point, they've already learned that what they think doesn't matter and that education is about being told things and remembering them rather than about what do I want to know? How am I going to learn it? Do you see? So we've completely shifted the locus of control, basically. And that, and I've almost lost what your question was originally, but that's what I see happening in school. And I, in a way, I mean, it all merges with my own experience. And I know you'll talk about that a bit later on, but I went to 11 different schools growing up because my parents moved around a lot and they moved us with them and they didn't send us back to boarding school. They kept us where we were. So we went to school wherever we were. And I actually think looking back that that's kind of what saved my sense of motivation because I never was subjected to the same thing year after year after year. Every couple of years, I'd be in a new environment with new stuff, with new ways of doing things. And I was kind of expected to keep it. And that kept me excited and stimulated about the world because there was always more. It was always like, how do I work out how things work in this school? Do you see what I mean? It was like this extra level, which I think I think actually kept me going. And I think that's why I was I, that's why I was successful at school. Okay. So there's kind of two there's two themes that have come out so far. One is um, in when you talked about the purpose of education, you talked about how you've seen in your work that there's a opportunity when people are young for them to get to know themselves, become comfortable in their own skin, and then when they miss that opportunity, then it's very hard for them to to do it later. There's a lot more barriers. But you know, if they don't learn, you know, declarative knowledge of or geography or whatever it might be early on. They can do that later. So that was one thing. And the other thing was, I guess, a passion for learning, an interest in learning, seeing learning as a, as a positive thing. So we can kind of think about those two things. So if we go to the first one, maybe you could just tell us how you see people, like what does it look like when someone comes to you and they're not comfortable in themselves or they don't, they, yeah, in their own skin, they don't know themselves. They don't know, they just don't have that self-awareness or their self, self-regulation. What does that look like? And and how do you see schools as creating that problem? So it's a really multifaceted, complex question and a complex answer because there's really no one way that people present. But I think, I mean, I would often be working from a cognitive behavioral model of a psychologist or because that's my training. And so I, they, people would come to me with beliefs about themselves, which are things like, I can't change anything. I'm worthless. What I think doesn't matter because that's that. And I say that because when I'm a, as a cognitive behavior psychologist, you're, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for what are the beliefs that this person has about themselves, which influence how they exist in the world now and cause them problems in the world now. So, I mean, someone who's been badly bullied at school, which I, I do see quite a lot of people who've been very badly bullied at school, they will often come with beliefs like I'm not safe. I'm not, you know, I, and I'm not worthy of being kept safe often. They'll often come 
with real anger and feeling of kind of that when I get when I'm stuck in a situation, I can't do anything about it. Because if you're at school and you're very unhappy at school, a lot of the emphasis is let's keep this child in school. Let's do whatever we can to keep this child in school, understandably. So what the child can learn from that is it doesn't matter how unhappy I am. I'm going to keep on being delivered back to school. And, you know, you get 12 years of that. That's a really long time to have taught somebody. doesn't matter if you're really unhappy. Keep going. So what does that person then do when they get into a job and they're really unhappy? Because actually the rules have changed now. Yeah, the adult rules are different. If you're really unhappy in a job, you can go and look for another job. But they still feel that they can, can't they have that still internal feeling of helplessness? So that's one group of people. But there's also people who learn that they are themselves stupid, basically, that they're not good enough and that they will never measure up to other people. Because in school, we compare children all the time, right from really early on. We're saying who's even when we're not we don't think we're doing it and where we don't explicitly do it. There's fascinating research that shows that from about the age of five, children are able to rank kids in their class by how clever the teacher thinks they are. And they're pretty good. They're right. And they know where they are in the hierarchy. And they'll say, I'm not clever. So by five or six, they've internalized that already. And then so they come to me at, you know, 25, 30. And that's what they believe still. They're still like, I'm not clever. I can't do this. So then they've got these life limiting beliefs, basically, which would stop them from doing things because they think I'm not good at this. So I won't apply for this. So I'm not good at this. So and also just this lack of agency. I see that a lot. This kind of thing, sense of I can't change anything. I can't influence anything. So what do I do? I sit in my room and I do nothing or I go to work, which to a job I don't like. And I do that. Do you see? So it's like. It's the beliefs. And I think if we think about school in that way, and we think about what beliefs these kids learning about themselves from this situation, then I think we would structure things a bit differently. And again, I think, oddly, this is something that early years educators are really aware of. And it's like that knowledge doesn't move up the school because we change to academics. The schools would start to think the, the real what education is about is about learning this maths or learning this science, learning this content. It's no longer about who are you as a person? And I think that's really, I think that's a profound mistake, actually. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes sense in a lot of ways, I think. And do you, do you see, I mean, we'd expect it to be a spectrum, right? So we've just talked about seeing adults who have been through this for 12 years. Is that a, do you work mainly with adults? Do you work with children? No, well? I work with both, actually. I work with adults, children and families. Fantastic. So as you see young people coming to you with challenges, do you see them kind of heading down this road or, and yeah, tell us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, and this, this kind of connects into something else, which really interests me, which is diagnosis. Uh, so a lot of the kids I've seen are children who are heading for a developmental, um, a diagnosis of what we would call a neurodevelopmental disorder. Okay. So I've worked in clinics in the NHS in the, so this is children who are heading for a diagnosis of autism or ADHD. And a lot of the kids I see in private practice would also either have those diagnoses or people would be kind of saying, oh, question mark, maybe they might have these diagnoses. So that's, you know, um, and this is an increasing group of kids, right? So it's a lot of kids. It's not a tiny minority thing. And what I often see with these children is that they describe feelings of helplessness at school 
or they describe feelings of being trapped at school. And what they describe the school doing in response is clamping down, basically, control. So I talk about in my book this little boy who tried to escape from school. And um, he, you know, he was one of the most determined children I've ever met in that he was absolutely determined that school was not the right place for him and he was going to get out of there. And of course, if you're 10 and you do that, then basically what happens is you get brought back <laughs> pretty quick by the neighbours who see you climbing the walls and that kind of thing. So there, I see kids in that kind of situation, but I generally see kids, there are so many it's hard to generalise, but I either see kids who are causing difficulties in school, so they're not complying with what school wants them to do. And then the school will be saying, oh, we're a bit concerned about this. So they're either refusing to do things or they are getting into fights sometimes. They can't cope with the bits like playtime play at school. They can't cope with their peers. They're just not complying. They're not kind of falling into line. And I think this group of kids is a fascinating group because when you meet one of these kids, it suddenly illuminates all the stuff that the other kids are doing. And you think, wow, everybody else is very compliant, really. You know, if you get really get into the mind of one of these kids and you start seeing it through their eyes and they're like, but I'm not interested in this. Why do I have to spend my whole day doing this? You're like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, why do I have to sit all day? I don't like sitting all day. I'd rather be running. Yeah, that makes sense. So I kind of get alongside the child and, and hear what they're saying. And you start to think, wow, they're not... You know, these are all reasonable things. And actually, if you were an adult and in a different situation, you'd be allowed to make these choices. But because you're a child, we've decided that you can't. And therefore, there's a different set of rules that apply. So I guess I'm thinking that psychologically, I think a lot of what kids come with makes perfect sense to me. And then often what I'm asked to do is to give them a diagnosis of being disordered. And I generally, I, would, I don't like the language of disorder at all. And the reason I use it is because those are the diagnoses that we give. You know, ADHD stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Autism is autism spectrum disorder. That is the diagnostic term. And I just grew increasingly uncomfortable with this idea that kids come and they don't fit the school environment. They don't fit the school system. And our response is to say, well, there's something wrong with you. And we don't say, hang on, maybe there's something wrong with that, this system, actually. And maybe there are things about it that just don't fit with you. doesn't mean there's anything wrong. You know, just like with adults, some adults are happy in one environment. Some adults are happy in another environment. Why have we got this hang up? That this must be the ultimate good environment for all kids. Hmm. Something that you were talking about then, it, it re reminded me of well, what you were talking about then, reminded me of the idea that was in the book, which is seeing young people's behavior as communication. and two things, seeing young people's behavior as communication, but also the idea that a disorder is not something that exists just within a child. It actually requires kind of a context. So I'd love for you to, to expand. I, I found them both very interesting ideas. I'd love for you to expand on them um, for us. I think it's kind of self-evident that behavior is communication because you know, we, we show other people what we think and feel in so many ways and children in particular do that because their language is not as well developed, they're not as articulate yet, and many children, the only way that they can really effectively communicate is through their behaviour. So, and a way that I would be thinking about a child's behaviour is if, if, say, someone comes to me and they say, okay, this child's having huge meltdowns, you know, 
what do we do? And often what they'll be expecting is a behavioural approach. And a behavioural approach would be, okay, how can we stop this child having the meltdowns? Can we reward them when they don't have meltdowns, for example? Can we have some kind of consequence when they do have meltdowns so that they learn that the meltdowns are not appropriate? You know, maybe we'll do something like time out and we'll put them in their room. Or maybe we'll, yeah, and maybe we'll have a star chart and we'll say, you know, a whole day without a meltdown gets you a point and then you get a marble in your jar. And if you get enough marbles, you can have a Lego set that kind of thing that would be your basic behavioral approach so the communication approach would be say okay so this child's having meltdowns when are they having meltdowns what happens before they have a meltdown why when what might they be telling us by this meltdown and what happens what do you do when you have when this meltdown happens so you know what do they actually what does that meltdown manage to communicate to you does it communicate to you for example that they're a bad child and you need to tell them off or you know they haven't got the message about behavior yet or does it communicate to you that actually they're overwhelmed and they just can't cope anymore and they need a bit of a get space away so i would be working with parents to think about what is what is this child trying to tell you that they can't tell you in another way And I think, say, for example, in schools, I think if we've got kids who are really disengaged, really rude, uninterested, hostile or really withdrawn. And actually, a lot of the kids I see would be very withdrawn. So, you know, these are the kids who just aren't talking to anybody. They might not be causing much problems, but they're turning up, doing the stuff. And then they're coming home and they're shutting themselves in their bedrooms. This would be teenagers, obviously. Um, What are they saying? Why are they doing that? What's driving that behavior? So if we go back to what I was talking about with this um, cognitive behavioral model, I'm looking at the beliefs that that person has that's meaning they do this. And I think often if someone's very withdrawn, they'll think, you know, there's no point. There's no point to anything I do. I can't change anything. So and and if they're very angry, it's again, it's like no one's listening to me. No one is hearing how my how, you know, I can't influence anything except by my behavior. So that's what I'm going to do. And I think that's the case for lots of kids in school, because actually they can't, no matter how articulate and vocal they are, they they can't change the system. (laughs) So in a way, their only way of showing us how they feel is through their behavior. So I suppose that's one of my deep reservations about very strict behavioral systems in that I can see completely that they work and that you need that if you've got a load of kids. But at the same time, you take away that method of communication as well. You've now removed that because you've treated behavior as something that's a problem rather than is actually something that we need to listen to and think, you know, if there's we've got really bad behavior, if a school has got a culture of really disruptive behavior, then we need to think about the whole system, not just the kids. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I see what you mean. I think I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think um, in terms of if you're looking at a whole school that has a lot of behavioral issues, I think sometimes you just have to go with a behaviorist approach to get things under control so, you know, people aren't smashing windows and doing graffiti everywhere first, and then maybe you create space for student voice and things like that. Yeah, so then you'd be addressing both sides of it, wouldn't you? You'd be saying, okay, so what is, what's being expressed here? But clearly, just because you're saying we're looking at this communication doesn't mean that it's acceptable to break windows or to hit other people. You know, I would never say, so we, you, sometimes it's kind of stereotyped as, you know, we let them do whatever they want and then we, we empathize. You have to have a point where you say, no, you can't do that. But I hear that you're distressed. Do you see what I mean? Or I hear that you're really angry. And you, and you don't necessarily have to be saying this to the young person because it depends at what stage of life they're at as to whether they're going to be able to hear you. But you need, would be thinking, okay, what's going on here? Why is things like this? How can we address that need 
rather than just how can we make sure that there's no wind? How can we stop the broken windows by putting up, you know, by finding everybody when they break a window so they stop doing it? Do you see what I mean? I think just you need both in consort. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of like I was speaking about this in a recent podcast. It's like when a student forgets to do their homework or something, it's not enough for us just to go, you know, we'll do your homework next time. If, you know, it's agreed that the homework's a valuable thing to do, which, you know, is, yeah. let's assume that that's a, something that's been agreed upon. Then asking the question, what what happened? Where were you? Where were you? Did you want to do it? When you wanted to do it, what happened? How did you react? Those kind of questions help them to come to understand themselves and, and the situation they're in, what they can control, what they can't control is so much more powerful than just saying, just make sure you don't do it next time. We'll make sure you do it next time or you get a bigger detention or whatever. Yeah. So it yeah, ties in with that. It's kind of walking them through the steps, isn't it? It's like thinking, okay, so if we have a shared problem here that you're not doing your homework. And if we, and of course, as you say, that agreement that you have a shared problem is actually really fundamental because actually if the young person doesn't think the homework is use, doesn't want to do the homework, doesn't think it's useful, thinks they've got many other better things to do with your time, then you're on a different level. But if you're like, you have a shared understanding of you need, this is important, then it's about problem solving what's happening, what's going wrong, and how could we get to the point where you'd be able to do it. And I think lots of young people, that doesn't just happen. That pro- you know, They need lots of experiences of problem solving to be able to solve problems. And I think that the neurodevelopmental, the neuroscience research shows really quite well that we need to do all of these things to develop these skills. So, you know, we psychologists, we talk a lot about executive functioning, about the frontal lobe skills that you need to organize yourself, that you need goal setting, problem solving, just the kind of higher order skills, but they don't just come. They don't just appear. You have to be doing them. And as you do them more, you become better at them. And I think that's, yeah, that's the difference really between just do it. And then the the young person's going, but I don't know why I'm honest man, never managed to do it, never quite happens. And the kind of, okay, let's talk you through the different bits here that might happen. And I think that's about relationship as well. You see, that's about what kind of relationship educator has with a young person whether you have a collaborative relationship or a controlling relationship Mm, yeah that makes sense and that ties back to what you're saying before about being comfortable with yourself and being able to deal with stresses later on in life if someone has learned those problem solving skills then they can you know the voice that was their parents voice or their teacher's voice becomes their own internal voice and they talk themselves through that problem solving exactly as opposed to a critical voice which is what many people come with later in life Mm. the critical voice is come on, why are you so lazy? Do your homework. And these voices ring in people's ears. It's terrifying when you, you know, I have so many people I've worked with who have the the voice of a teacher ringing in their ear saying you're stupid or you'll never amount to anything or what, you know. And it's amazing. 20 years later, it's there. So <laughs> it's such a powerful job. Yeah. Something something else you said there was something was one of the things that stuck out in the book as well. And that was just like the kind the, the role of autonomy and the sense of hopelessness that a lot of young people feel that then just causes them to shut down and just not engage. Did you want to talk a little bit about the importance of people having con- control over portions of their life and how that's linked to, to wellbeing and things like that? Yeah. So I mean there's there's it's coming from two angles, the autonomy, because I know that there's a whole literature on intrinsic motivation. And I actually normally talk about internally driven motivation because I think intrinsic motivation gets a bit of a bad press and that people are like, oh, but you can't just do things you love doing all the time. And I actually think there's, it's not about that. It's about something that a person chooses to do, something that a person is doing because it's valuable to them, even if they're not, they don't actually want to do it. So, you know, I've done many jobs where 
I haven't enjoyed the job at all because it wasn't a, it was a rubbish job, but I was doing it because I wanted to do it and I wanted to get money for it, basically. And I think that's still internally driven motivation. Whereas external motivation is when somebody is trying to control, someone's wanting you to make, to make you want to do something using rewards and punishments, basically. And I think that internally driven motivation is really important for learning, but also for life, because that's the kind of kernel that makes us think, what do I want to do? What's valuable to me? What am I going to do? And I think that's really important for well-being. So there's a lot of research that shows that if for um, internally driven motivation, what's important is autonomy, relation, relatedness, relationships with other people, and a kind of feeling of mastery or purpose about what you do. So something that feels like this is, I can do this. I have the, I can, I have the capacity to do this. You need those three things together. But then as a kind of coming from the kind of well-being aspects of it, feeling a lot of control is it's just so much at the core of what people come with when they come with mental health problems. And again, I think it's a bit like with the disorders. It's easy to kind of silo people off and say, oh, well, they've got a mental health problem. So they're different. They're not the same as everybody else. But actually, the research shows that there is no separate group of people. There is no separate group of people who is disorders in quotes. There's no separate group of people who are mentally ill in quotes, really. It's all dimensional. It's all about these things are varying across everybody. It's all about the threshold that we decide to say, yes, you have a problem. No, you don't have a problem. And it's just ubiquitous that people who come along feeling that they're, they don't have any control over things, they feel depressed. They feel anxious. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, why wouldn't you? If you feel like that, that's your kind of state in, in the world, you don't feel good. So I think, and I think that's kind of where I started off thinking about all these things, just thinking of what are we teaching people in school that means they come out at the end with these self-beliefs. And there's often this model in school that people talk about. They say, right, but, you know, if you succeed in school and you do well, then you'll become motivated or you will develop these, these self-beliefs about yourself. And I think, well, I'm not actually so sure about that. I did do well in school and I don't think I learned that I was in control of it particularly. I think I learned that I was had to be evaluated by other people all the time and they were the ones who would say, yes, you're successful. No, you're not successful. But also I think that the reality of school is that everybody will not, cannot be successful and will not be successful because it's a very narrow set of things we're evaluating young people on. And it's comparative. The whole system is comparative right from early on. As, as I said, with those five and six year olds, they know who's clever. They know who's not clever. You know, the whole system is based on some people being successful and some people not being successful. And I suppose when we come back to the point of education, I think that's one of the great tragedies, actually, of our education system, that I would really like it to be an education system that didn't need to sort everybody out all the time. That didn't need to be saying, yes, you're the successes, you're the failures, even though they might not explicitly say that. It's said all the time, you know, you passed the exam, you didn't pass the exam. In the UK, we have, you know, we have tests at age six. Some people pass, some people don't. Again and again, we have these times. And I just think, why is that actually necessary? What are we doing to kids constantly, right from so early on, making them compare themselves with others and thinking, yes, I'm good at this. No, I'm not good at this. I don't think it's very helpful. I mean, one of the examples I think is, is most easiest to, it's easiest to see with is um, PE or physical exercise. I don't know what you call it. You call it the same thing in Australia. But um, so many people I know learned from PE at school that they were no good at sports. So, you know, we played competitive sports at school. They weren't in the team. They weren't any good. I learned myself. I wasn't very good at a whole range of sports. Result being, I get out of school. 
stop exercising because all the kinds of exercise that I did at school, like netball, <laughs> rounders, I was no, I wasn't very good at them, and I didn't want to do them again. Whereas actually, as an adult, there's so much to physical exercise which I can be good at without having to compete with other people. Like my kids are doing bouldering, which is kind of climbing. No one's ranking them all on it. No one's saying we're not in team. You know, it's like we do it because it's fun and we do it because it's great to stay active. And I would like to see school generally as more of that. We do these things because they're interesting and because we're learning, not because we want to rank you against everybody else. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's actually, it's quite funny. I've kind of had an epiphany this week, I think. So when I was at school, I was good at maths and science and things like that. I got I got the marks and, you know, I got accolades for that and things like that. But I could never seem to crack English. I had like, you know, a string of teachers from, you know, probably year seven to nine who I just couldn't couldn't get above a B. And for me, that wasn't particularly good. And, and, I, and I just decided I don't like English, you know, don't like it, don't, don't like language, et cetera. But as I've grown, you know, wrote a book last year, I've been learning poetry recently, I've been learning languages, I've been trying to read some of the classics. And I, I just realized the other day, maybe I'm actually really drawn to languages and literature and stuff. And it was just some early experiences that made me think I wasn't good at them and they weren't for me. And maybe actually, maybe I'd be, maybe I'd have more fun as an English teacher than a maths teacher. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's just this, like basically being told that I was good at a sciencey, mathsy person throughout my whole education and that I wasn't an English person. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, it's just another... I had a very similar experience, actually, because I was also a sciencey maths person at school. And I actually loved English and have always loved English as well as that. I've always like read copious books. But there was a strong emphasis at school of if you can do maths and science, do them, because not everybody can do them. You know, they're like lots of people are good at English and history and stuff who can't, who will be like, oh, maths and science. No. Whereas if you are good at maths and science, go for it. So I did. I did physics and chemistry and maths and further maths at higher level. And then I actually went on and did medicine at university. And then it was only two thirds of the way through my degree that I did an intercalated year in psychology. And psychology was very, very different. You know, although it was in theory, it was taught as a science at my university. It was very different. It was essay based. You had to think in a very different way. And I had a kind of epiphany then. I was like, wow, actually, maybe I'm really interested in this kind of stuff instead. And I'm not so interested in this hard science that I've been plowing through for the last four or five years. And I was lucky because I I changed course and now I never became a doctor and now I'm a psychologist. But I feel very lucky to have had that moment because I also just felt like I, I, I wrote, ruled out lots of options for myself very early on. Like I, I stopped doing art when I was very like 14 because I wasn't as good at art as other people and I was better at something else. I knew I wouldn't get an art age in art GCSE. So I was like, okay. And I've carried that with me, this idea that I'm no good at art and just I never do it. And it's interesting because my daughter is obviously going through something very different, but she's really into art. That's her thing. She's 10 and she does art and stuff all the time. And her drawing is incredible. And I say to her, wow, your drawing is so good. And she says, mommy, you just need to practice it. If you just did it every day, <laughs> you'd get better too. And I'm like, she's, she's completely right. She knows. <laughs> and there's something in me that stops me doing that. It's almost like there's a bit, there's a bit of me that says, oh, you know, you're never going to be any good at this. So there's no point. Wow. It's an odd thing we do to kids, I think, where 
Because another thing I think about is lessons and stuff that kids do, even in and out of school, how there's so often an emphasis on being good at something rather than doing it because you enjoy it. And when you get to adult stuff, if you do adult lessons in things, the focus changes. You know, there's there's not the same focus on you need to excel with this. It's like, you know, if you're going to do piano lessons as an adult, it'll be what, what do you enjoy playing? What would you like to do? Whereas with a child, it's like, let's move you through these grades. We've got this very different way of thinking about childhood. And it's like we're looking for them to be excellent because maybe that will be their career you know then maybe they're going to be an amazing piano player and we need to nurture this talent and they need to be or maybe they'll be a fantastic mathematician and we're always looking for that but you know most people we're just going to live our lives and we might find all sorts of things that we're good at at different stages in our life and maybe we're shutting off some of that for kids by making them think you either have to be good at something or it's just not worth it interesting yeah a a story that i found really interesting because I came across your work um, via two main avenues. One, my good friend George Zonios here in Melbourne, who's really into self-directed learning, and he he put me onto your book. But also I heard you around the same time on James Mannion's podcast, and you shared a really interesting story on that podcast of you seeing a young person in your capacity as a psychologist within a couple of weeks or months of one of your colleagues also seeing them and the process of diagnosis, which really made me think, wow, that's yeah, maybe there's some issues here. I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that here for, for listeners yeah. to HPLR. Yeah, so this was when I was working at a London teaching hospital. and It was a neurodevelopmental team and we were seeing kids for diagnoses of either autism or ADHD. And what would happen is we'd bring the whole family in for a day and someone else, another assistant psychologist would do a kind of play-based assessment with the kids. I would do a developmental assessment with the adults. We'd all come together and discuss and have a, you know, what do we think here? And I mean, the way these diagnoses are done, the way psychiatric diagnoses are done is that there is a list of different criteria and you have to meet particular ones that there's no... um, Everybody does not make the same criteria. Yeah. So you might have three out of five or six out of four or not six out of four, four out of six. Anyway, it's varied. It's varied, basically. So we did this whole assessment and we got the family back in and I said to them, we think that that she has autism. And the father looked at me and he said, but the doctor last week, last time said she didn't. And I was like, ugh. (laughs) what's happened here and I went out and talked to the administrator and they looked up on the system and the family had been offered exactly the same assessment three weeks previous by just by administrative error literally by administrative error so they'd come in they'd seen a different clinician they'd seen a different person and that time they'd been told not autistic and I was just horrified, actually. I was, <laughs> I was like, whoa, this is, my, this is my job, right? This is what I'm doing. I'm giving kids these diagnoses. And yet we're so unreliable that giving them, that even within the same team, we can disagree. And the thing about diagnoses like this is that they can come down to, to one or two different items, yes? Because it's, you're looking at a checklist and you're saying, do they fill and fit enough of this, these criteria? So perhaps on the day that this child went to see the other the other the other team, perhaps she was feeling, perhaps she slept better and perhaps she was feeling more sort of sociable. And so she performed differently in the tests or her parents were maybe feeling different. And so they gave me slightly different answers. And that all just skewed us towards a different diagnosis. And when you get a diagnosis of autism, it's lifelong. It's a, you know, we say to them, it's a lifelong disability. Things, they will, they will change and grow, obviously, but they'll have this diagnosis for life. So I was like, wow, we're giving these diagnoses for life. 
on the basis that it, it's actually so unreliable that, you know, if they haven't come back again, they might not have got that diagnosis for life. And it also really amazed me because this was a family from Eastern Europe. They all came, like mother, father, child and sibling. They'd all taken a day off work and school to come again to see us, having done it three weeks before. And they thought it was a follow up. Okay, so but the power dynamic between me and them was so much so that they didn't feel able to say we've had all these questions before. This is exactly the same, you know, and it, it just wow, it just made me think, gosh, we need to take a big step back and think about what we're doing here. Because the other thing about that clinic, which really opened my eyes to so much, was that parents come in really desperate for diagnosis. And I completely understand why they're desperate for a diagnosis, because the school tells them if your child needs help, can needs help, you need to get a diagnosis. So off they go and they often wait for like two years to get the, the assessments. It's a horrible, horrible process. And they're told that's the only way you can get help. So we have this system where we're di- having to give kids a lifelong diagnosis. And we, the, the diagnosis process is focused on the child. So we do ask, we ask school about the child. We, get, we ask teachers about observations. They fill in questionnaires, all that kind of thing. But we don't really look at, could the school, is this school system, for example, really incompatible with this child? And might that actually be a lot of the problem? And if we thought about it as an interaction between the child and the system, rather than a, the child, might we go and design a different kind of education system, for example? So one of my big things is I think that by dividing these kids off and saying these kids have got special educational needs, they're disordered. And I'm going to put that in quotes again, but it is what the diagnoses say. It prevents us from kind of feeding back into the system and thinking maybe this system doesn't work for a lot of kids. Because I don't know what it's like where you are, but about 15 to 20 percent of kids in the UK get a diagnosis of some kind of special educational needs. It's a lot of children, nearly one in five. And so and if we weren't saying, OK, these children are disordered, that's why it doesn't work for them. Maybe we'd be thinking, oh, maybe that maybe children just, you know, don't work in quite the way we think they work. Maybe their learning doesn't work in quite the way we think it works. Maybe we should rethink things. So actually it worked for a much wider group of society, because the way I see these kids is that everybody, there's a huge spectrum of variation. And they're the kids who are at the one end of that spectrum where they find the kind of school environment much more challenging, usually. And that doesn't mean that there's it's an arbitrary threshold between them and every, and the rest. You know, it's not that they are some kind of distinctively different group. And I think we imply that by giving them a diagnosis and by saying this one, these children need something different. Because we sort of say then everybody else is OK. They don't need anything different. And I don't think that's the case. Mm. So what did you do in that situation when you had <laughs> what, how did you follow it up? What did you what did you do? I, I mean, the thing is, I, I took it. I sort of took it up to my manager and said, you know, what do we do here? And he said, what do the family want? And the family said, we'd rather have a diagnosis. So we wrote, that's what we did. We gave them a report and that, and they had the diagnosis. And that is generally what families will say. They would rather have a diagnosis. Because if you don't give them a diagnosis, then you're effectively sending them back with no help because the diagnosis is used as the key to help. So it's like having the diagnosis is a way of saying, yes, this child is different. They need something different. So if you come back and they're like, no, they didn't. They said no. The child is still exactly the same person as they were before. They still have exactly the same difficulties they had before. Nothing has changed about the child. But now they've been they've said they don't have these problems. So what happens now? 
Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And then to just get back on, get back with it. But that wasn't working before. So, so, so generally families want diagnosis. Yeah. Interesting. And I think you that. It also relates to another idea you shared in the book, which is the idea of brain or blame, which may be yeah. another reason why, why parents want a diagnosis. Could you tell us about that? Absolutely. So we kind of have this idea in our society, and it's not just with um, autism and ADHD, but with a lot of different diagnoses, that the only two ways we can explain behaviour, or the only two ways we can explain not fitting in, maybe, is either there's something wrong with your brain, or it's your fault. So it's either, yes, you have, you can get a diagnosis of XYZ, or you're lazy, you're stupid, you're not trying or your parents, yes, your parents aren't parenting well enough. Absolutely. So, and you see that happening in school a lot of the time. You know, there'll be a sort of, we, parents will often talk to me about feeling blamed for their child's behaviour in school. So they'll be brought in and they'll either have to take the child home because the child's behaviour is too extreme for the school to manage, or they'll be told, you know, this child really has to shape up. You need to do something. And the parents like. I can't, I can't control their behavior when they're at school. You know, I can't control their behavior outside school either often, but I certainly can't control their behavior when they're at school. So the diagnosis gives everybody a kind of way out of that because it's like, it's okay. It's not your fault. It's the brain. But these are really simplistic explanations, really reductionist explanations. And I would like to see a way where we could say, okay, so this isn't your fault. And it's nobody's fault, but there's something not working in the interaction between the system and this person. Let's think about that. And we don't need to we don't need to say that's because you, either side is disordered or either side is to blame. It's an interaction. And some interactions work better than others. This one isn't working. Let's see how we can tweak, tweak that. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's like whenever whenever we have a whenever a disagreement is had, thinking, you know, what what role did I play in that? You know, I'm sure there must have been something. It takes two to tango, you know, how many cliches you want to pull out and it's like but when it's a student in school often we don't ask that question well what you know what's coming from the school side that's created this problem yeah yeah we don't and I saw lots of kids who were in schools with zero tolerance policies and they would be getting in trouble a lot of the time for very small or what I would consider to be quite small sins not sins in the right word but you know transgressions they would be doing things like tapping their pencil on the desk or they'd be doing things like jiggling in their chair and I talked to one mother, which really struck with me, actually, because her child had been having an awful time at school and was getting in trouble constantly. And he had, you know, the school had the system. They wrote the names up on the board. He hated that, made him feel really, really shamed. And they also had a system of whole class punishment. So the other kids hated him because he was getting in trouble all the time and he was being blamed for it. And he spent a lot of time outside the classroom because he was being sent out anyway. And it turned out that a lot of it started from things like tapping his de- his pen on the table, which he would always be written up for, and jiggling in his desk. And they moved schools. And she said, oh, my goodness, the difference, this has made a huge difference. And the difference has been that when he started tapping his pen on the table, what they did was they got a bit of foam and they wrapped it around the pencil. So now he can tap his pencil on the table, doesn't make a noise, doesn't bother anybody. And I was like, <laughs> Wow. What a simple intervention to have made as opposed to trying to control this behavior out of the child. And it was working and he was much happier and he wasn't going down that whole route. So, you know, I think so often things schools can do if they think a bit laterally about what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, I'm interested, Naomi, because you, you know, when I asked you at the start, you said you're a clinical psychologist and yet everything you've said so far 
seems like you don't really believe in a lot of the primary tools and and, and jobs of clinical psychologists. I mean, I've got very shallow understanding of what a clinical psychologist does. What, but but what does this mean? What do these beliefs that you hold mean for your your practice? I think you've probably. I don't know whether in Australia things are a bit different. In the UK, clinical psychologists typically aren't very involved with diagnosis. That, is that what you mean by assessment and diagnosis isn't really a major part of the role? I was It was quite unusual, actually, that I was in a team where that was the main part of my role. Usually, clinical psychologists in the UK think in terms of what they call formulation rather than diagnosis, which would be seeking to understand what's going on for a person in the context of their past history, other people in their life. You'd be you're trying to understand what's going on and then you're trying to form hypotheses based on what you think is going on. And then you'd be trying to intervene based on those hypotheses. So it's actually less. It's possible that in Australia it's different. I know that in the States, clinical psychologists are much more diagnosis focused. So actually what I'm saying isn't that unusual for a clinical psychologist. I think what's different about it is that I'm bringing it to education, whereas most clinical psychologists would be more focused on mental health because that's where we work. and. And I think the thing that happened for me was that I think, I mean, in a way, I think the fact that we work so separately is a real problem That because we were, so when I was at the neurodevelopmental clinic, we were being used as part of the education system effectively. We were being used to prop up the way the education system was used because we were the gatekeepers to these diagnoses. But we didn't work in the schools. The schools never, do you see what I mean? It was like we were these two institutions and I felt, I felt very uncomfortable with the way that we were being used to prop up the school system without any feedback so there was no never any potential I mean that's not quite right because you write a report and the report goes back to the school and the report might suggest things particularly for this individual child it might say you know that why don't you try wrapping a bit of foam around their pencil or that kind of very you know there'll be there'll be stuff about the individual child but there's never a chance to feedback and say you know what actually this whole system is producing an enormous amount of mental health problems, different difficulties, maybe we should actually get together and think about how to change this whole thing so that we weren't, you know, the, the analogy that's used is turn off the taps. I don't know if you've seen that. It goes around Twitter where you're saying we're at the, the clinical psychologists, we're like downstream mopping up the problems that are coming out of the system, but the taps are the system. So, you know, we're, we're there trying to do our assessments or trying to do our therapy and trying to kind of mop things up. But actually, maybe we need to get up back to the top and say, what needs to change? Some things need to change here so that we're not with this constant flow of unhappy people, really. Mm. One of the other things you really talked about a lot in the book was, and we, we've talked about a little bit, but the idea of motivation and the impact that schools have on young yeah. people's motivation to learn. What are some of the main things that really turns young people away from learning that you see present in the standard school system? So I think part of the, so one, I talked a bit about self-determination theory, internal, internally driven motivation, external motivation. And then the research shows that the more you try to motivate someone from the outside, the more destructive that is of their internally driven motivation. And when they, the, the research that found this was a surprise because people expected that externally driven motivation would kind of like augment the internally driven stuff or it would like, you know, give it an extra oomph or that you would do that first and then somebody would become internally motivated. Doesn't seem to work like that. The more that you put the pressure on, the more somebody feels like they don't want to do it. 
which makes perfect sense to me if I think about my own motivation. The moment yeah. I feel pressured to do something, I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. When I, you know, even if it's something I might really like to do. So I think that's one problem. And I don't think schools are aware enough of that because people often think about external or extrinsic motivation just in terms of punishments, for example. But I think it's far more subtle than that. It's much more about rewards. It's about approval. It's about how we try and often manipulate many aspects of children's behavior in order to get them doing what we want. And when they're young, we can often get away with that because they're not so aware of it. And as they get older, they get more and more and more aware of it and more resentful. And yet the control doesn't lift off. It's a bit like I was talking about at the beginning. The young kids get the choices and autonomy because basically they refuse anything else. You know, they won't sit in rows and do their, do their homework. They just won't. But the older we get, the more we take it away. And I find it bizarre that people will say, oh, you know, my class of whatever, 14-year-olds couldn't cope with any autonomy. But they almost certainly did when they were four and five because that's the system works. So what's happening then? If they can manage it when they are four or five, but they can't now, what is going on in those 10 years? Surely we should be thinking about how we can build on that kind of autonomy and self-direction rather than take it away from them and then wonder when they get to, say, 16 or 18, say, oh, but they have no drive. Well, of course they have no drive. We took it away from them. They had it at the beginning. So I think that's it. But I think, I think that the key thing that, and this kind of connects to self-directed education, I think the key thing that schools do is they remove choice and they remove responsibility for children's learning from them. And I think that they do that because they think that the curriculum is the most important thing. The children have to learn the curriculum. And so therefore you take away choices because how else do you make them learn the curriculum? You, you know, if, if there are only a very few children will probably say that, you know what, this curriculum is exactly what I'd like to learn, given the choice. So I'll do it. So I think the thing that that really needs to happen in schools for us to really have a more internally driven motivation focus is more choice and more options. And that relates back to what I was saying earlier about whether we're looking to compare children at school or whether we're looking to help them develop into who they want to be. Because if we're looking to compare them, then we have to make them all do the same thing because otherwise, how are we going to compare them? So it kind of all connects together. But I think the, the thing that people find most tricky is the fact that If children are allowed to choose, they won't necessarily choose what adults would have chosen for them because they're their own people. And many adults find that a really scary idea that children might not choose to do what they would like them to do. And they think that education is about making them do what they want them to do. And so in doing that, I don't think there's any way around that if you do, if that's your mindset, you're going to take away autonomy because I I can't, I don't know if you have any others, I can't see how those two things fit together. Mm. Yeah, I guess I guess a counterpoint would be so. Just then, you said education is about getting children to do what you want them to do. I think a, a lot of people would say, and you know, it's it's paternalistic for sure. But I think a lot of people say, for their own good, young people need to learn these things. So, and and this is a particularly prevalent in you know, if you're working with underprivileged young people who don't come from a background with a lot of cultural capital, and really for the, to give them a ticket out of their situation one of those tickets you know there's probably many but one that has a lot of weight um seems to be to take a really knowledge rich curriculum approach train them in oracy teach them how to talk like someone that doesn't come from where they come from teach them how to teach them about the cultural references that are part of the dominant culture and give them to to the tools to to engage and and climb their way up what about that what about what about the power that that has to change people's lives yes i mean Again, I would be saying that we're always narrowing in 
on a particular set of stuff and saying, you know, this is what's important. And it's quite reductionist in terms of the focus, because I would say it actually, if somebody has an enormous amount of knowledge about their culture, but no sense of themselves as an active learner and as a person whose choices matter, then at some point they're going to hit a brick wall. And, you know, the people I work with, they're not, they're all, they range a whole, there's a whole range of people, but at some point they're going to be like, what do I really love here? And I actually, the way I see this sometimes is with young people whose parents have a very strong aim for them. So I meet sometimes people, not actually not, not that young necessarily, but whose parents right from the beginning have been like, you're going to be a doctor. Or, and often these will actually be quite poor parents. It will maybe be first generation immigrants and they'll be like, you are going to be the success. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a lawyer. You know, you are going to be the reason that we have come to this country and we have made all these sacrifices. And this is what you're going to do. And they do it. Yeah. So they get through it all. They do it. They do really well. Maybe they go to a high flying university. They get a great degree. They become whatever they're meant to be. Then they get to about 30 and they go, I don't know who I am. <laughs> I really don't know who I am. I've made other people's choices all the way through and they've succeeded and I've got a nice house and I've got a salary, but it's not enough because I don't know who I am. And I think that's that's just something we have to keep in our wide, in our frame of reference that Whatever we do, there's always a cost to it. There's always other sides to it. So when we're pushing a, you know, when we're pushing one kind of learning, we're saying, we're basically saying to young people, it's so important that you do this that I'm going to take away any choice from you. I'm going, because you cannot be trusted to make good choices for yourself. I think that's a quite dicey ground to base an education on, but I also think it's actually particularly important for kids who come from deprived backgrounds to feel that their choices matter <clears throat> because school is more important to kids who aren't getting so much at home. Yeah. School is, if you're not getting lots of stimulation at home, if you haven't got lots of resources at home, school is where you're going to get those kind of things. So if what you're learning at school is what I choose makes no difference, what I think makes no difference, because my only route to success is to do what that person says, uh, do what the school says and pass their exams. I feel quite uncomfortable about that. I don't know how, I mean, you know, I feel thinking just about the whole culture at the moment of talking about different levels of society and privilege. I feel there's a really inherent level of privilege here of people who feel entitled to say what I know and what my cultural references are so important that I am going to oblige you to learn them for 12 years. And yeah, that would be my take on it. And I think also there are many success stories of kids who school with schools who do take a very different approach so it's not that this is the only way it's not that you know lots of learning lots of cultural capital lots of knowledge rich stuff is the only way to succeed there are many other ways to succeed so i think we have to be asking ourselves so are the side effects of that insignificant enough that we're not going to worry about it or might they actually cause us to just take a little bit of caution and say okay yes i can see you learning all this stuff but what's the impact on you? And we might, the thing is, these the long-term impacts. We might not know. These kids might not even know until they look back many years in the future and go, wow, <laughs> you know, what happened? No, it's really, it's, your answers there really got me thinking, Naomi, for sure. I think the story about the, you know, the first generation immigrant who, so a few of whom you've seen, I mean, so the the critics here will be listening going, well, that's all anecdotal stuff, you know, and Naomi's, Naomi's job is to see people who end up like that. And there's probably 
for every one Naomi sees there's you know 99 who who are actually completely stoked that they're now doctors and and can help their families and stuff so but yeah the point that there are side effects there i think is really valuable and 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 the way you're framing it of saying you know we just need to think seriously about them and and think about whether that's something that is worth worth dealing with and all yeah the the privilege the paternalistic thing that it's an interesting one as well i mean you the way you framed it then was you said it's you know what i know and what my cultural references are so important that you need to learn them i'm i'm not sure if i'd quite see it like that i'd i'd see it more as like just an acknowledgement of the cultural dominance of certain norms and references within a society and and an acknowledgement of a fact that you know engaging with a society in in that way requires knowledge of those norms and cultural references rather than some kind of designed thing of the privileged group i don't know what your thoughts are on that no i mean i hear what you're saying there's a kind of pragmatism about it <clears throat> this is how it is so you know so learn it kind of thing but i guess i would like more and i i mean what i'm talking about is i think you know the system as we have it isn't working in terms of keeping our world going you know we have climate change disaster happening all over the place we have global pandemics which our governments don't know how to cope with and here we have brexit you know here we have queues for fuel and supermarket empty shelves at the supermarket so and we have people with the highest level of cultural capital in control of our our government they all went to like the top you know the, the most expensive public school in the uk our government largely and yet they're not managing to solve these problems so i would say that there's a particular kind of success a narrow kind of success which yes you do need this kind of stuff for for sure but i think we also need divergent thinkers we need different ways of thinking about this and i think unfortunately teachers and educators they tend to be people who've done quite well at school so they tend to be people who've bought into that system themselves and i think it's really hard to step out of that and to think about what it means to what what we might just be missing what kind of cultural knowledge we're we're losing by not finding out about what how our children how the young people we work with really see the world for example and do you see what i mean i would just like it to be much more of a two-way thing because i feel the system needs to change we need new ideas it's not working for us and i would hate to see this kind of system of training where we're basically training young people to to suit the world that we're in right now we don't even know whether in 20 years time many of the systems we have now will be in place you know just thinking about what happened in the uk with brexit suddenly all sorts of jobs about we're working with the european union have gone things that when i was young i might have been thinking oh i could have gone and worked for a year in france or that's not there for our young people anymore so things are changing all the time and adaptability i don't think is well served by rigidity in of curriculum do you see what i mean yeah i think I, yeah. it needs to be more fluid um and i mean i don't yeah, obviously, that's part of the problem, isn't it? In a way, it's interesting you say, you know, people say, oh, it's anecdotal. I mean, I'm pretty sure that there will be research papers on these kind of things because they're certainly not something that I myself, I'm, I'm, the, I'm not the only person. And I also, I supervise a lot of clinical psychologists. So I hear many, many, many stories. I hear many more stories than I myself see as a clinician because for each person I supervise, I will be hearing stories. So I suppose, yeah, I'm just I'm just pushing back on the anecdotal thing because I think we need this kind of we need this kind of feedback as well. It's a bit like I was saying, there's no feedback from mental health into schools as to what's going on. And 
it can all mental health can all become a bit simplistic in schools I think sometimes it may not be in all schools but there can sometimes be a kind of let's help you cope with the situation let's do these relaxation exercises or help you manage it's all but there's never a system of is this system actually working for all of you is it a mentally healthy system I mean from what I hear from teachers as well as young people it's not a very mentally healthy sustainable system (laughs) I mean I don't know what it's like in Australia but here certainly it doesn't seem like a sustainable system on any level not just for young people yeah and and I guess what I would encourage teachers to do as they listen to this podcast and as they read their book and what I what I did as I was reading your book was I just reflected on my own classes now and in the past and the students I work with and have worked with and just tried to think you know are there actually are there students who I've worked with who have displayed these behaviors and these beliefs and this lack of motivation and I think most teachers when they think about it in that way they'll go yeah actually there's a hell of a lot of them there are a lot of kids who are completely turned off learning and especially the ones that really get you the ones where you see their interest there but you see that at some point they have been turned off and there's a few kids who who are in my mind right now and I just think I actually had one kid say to me he's like one of the smartest kids I've ever taught like I could just explain year 12 physics. I could just explain something in class. He would get it straight away. He would remember it, but he just ne- would never do any work and just, you know, just didn't didn't care, would very, very rarely engage with class at all. But he, I could see he found it interesting. And one day I said, let's call him Robbie. I said, Robbie, why, why aren't you uh, into it? Like why aren't you, like I can see you find it interesting. Why, why don't you want to try? Like, and he's like, oh, it happened in grade three. I was like, what happened? He's like, well, I always worked really well. I always worked really hard and then I always did really well. And then one day um, there was this poster I had to do and I was just too busy. I had something else on and I just decided not to try and I just didn't didn't try and I did a really bad job and then I still got an A. And then I realized that I didn't have to do anything. There was like, it just didn't matter. (laughs) And he's just like grade three, like super smart kid, grade three, what is he, nine years old or something. He's just going, oh. It doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter what I do, and so he just switched himself off. It's just um, that's you know that's just one story. There's lots of lots that's of other such kids. A perfect example, is it? Because at some point he's learned that what matters is somebody else's evaluation of it mm-hmm. as well. So that's the bit that I think is so damaging is that everything's done because of somebody else's evaluation. Because another story with him could have been, I love doing this stuff, and so I did this one badly, and you know. But who cares if I got an A or not? Because actually I do this stuff because I love doing it. Mm. And probably if he's super smart, he probably does love doing it because that's often why these kids do, you know, they get a, they get a buzz out of it. They love maths or they love science. Um, and yet we've somehow turned it into something that's about the mark. Yeah. It reminds me of the story you told about your own um, education and how you were doing really well and then you had to do dancing or something like, do you want to share that one? Yeah, so when I was at, I went to an American um, international school in one of my many schools that I went to, and um, we had a thing called the the honor roll, and they would stick um, every every four times a year they would stick a piece of paper up on the all around the school, and it would be high honors if you got above ninety percent in everything, and honors if you got above ninety percent uh, in everything except for two eighties, and all your subjects counted, no nothing could be left out, and I was always on the high honors roll always you know I love I just that was kind of like a a thing of for me it was a bit like you know you said with your B in English yeah if I didn't get on high honours roll then I thought I was doing badly then we had this new PE teacher 
and all the rules changed in terms of what PE was about to be because it was all about dancing and I was just useless at dancing and we had to choreograph our own dance to this song lollipop lollipop I can still remember it (laughs) and every PE lesson it would be playing and we'd be having to do this stuff And then we had to perform it to the rest of the group and we would be graded on it. And when me performed, everybody laughed. I remember we just lumbered across the stage. None of us had a clue about choreography. None of us were interested in dancing. And we kind of went through the motions and we got bad grades for it. And that was that. I wasn't going to be on the high honor roll. Didn't matter how brilliantly I did in, you know, history or English or maths or anything. I had that was it. And I was like, what? <laughs> what is the point of this? I really was. I felt so punished by it. Actually, I was so angry. I mean, obviously, I was so angry. I can still feel a bit of how angry I was because it was like my motivation just plummeted straight away. And so I was like, you know, and I think it's a great example of what Alfie Kern called punished by rewards, where, you know, being on a high honours role was a reward. And it did make me feel good as long as I was on the high honours role. But the moment something happened that meant I wasn't, I was really punished by that, you know. So it, it worked like a punishment. It was a kind of aversive reaction. And also Alfie Kern talks about how everybody else who isn't on the high honours role is effectively punished by this reward as well. So whereas teachers often think, you know, it's better to reward. Rewards are good. Let's induce them to do things rather than punish them. There's always the flip side. And this is a bit, this is kind of the same theme as we were talking about with knowledge rich. There's always a flip side to everything. You know, it's always good. To, you can always focus on the positives of something, but there's always, a, OK, what's going on? What else is going on? If we widen our lens a bit, what else do we see? Yeah, that's good. And, and I think it's just so important that we have those conversations about what is the flip side? What is the cost? Mm. Yeah, it's something, I, something I'll th- throw to you l- later when we've talked a bit more about self-directed learning, I guess. But it was quite interesting towards the end of a recent podcast I did with Sammy Kempner, who does works at, my, my understanding, it's pretty much a no um no I excuses listen, I listen to it. Uh, okay great yeah. so yeah you've got it a good a idea podcast. thanks um and you know at the end he was kind of like oh well but you know i do have this niggling feeling or this wonder that what we're doing is making students who aren't you know able to learn independently and it's like yeah it's good and i thought it was such sorry i keep talking over you it was such a i really liked this podcast i've, I've listened to several of different podcasts with, with, but his was amazing it gave you such an insight into his classroom and how it all worked and those were the two things that stood out for me was when he said that, but also when he was talking about his six formers and he was saying that somehow all these years of using the systems that he used didn't seem to have been internalized by the six formers, that they still needed to be kind of walked through that, you know, you need to go away and practice this. You need to do these, these things. And I thought that's really interesting. What's going on here that this responsibility is being handed over So the kids are handing over the responsibility for learning to their teachers. And at what point do they take it back? Because you'd have thought by sixth form they might be taking it back because they're choosing those subjects, aren't they? But but I guess this sort of dynamic has been set up. I do what I'm told to do. And I'm told to do pretty well everything that I should be doing. I micromanage to the point that, you know, I'm not allowed to do anything that I shouldn't be doing. And therefore, I don't actually know what to do. And I had, um, I mean, it's interesting, one of the things that you you mentioned on your list was about university. I actually think that happens for lots of kids when they get to university, even if they haven't been through a very, very controlling system. If they've been through quite a controlling system, they get to university. And it's kind of like now nobody is making you do any of it. 
or at least in the UK, you go to university and you choose whether you go to your lectures or not. You know, no one is, no one's going to chase you. No one is going to make you do it. You choose to go to your supervisions. You choose to hand in your essays. If you don't, you'll just get a zero, but no one's going to come after you and say, why aren't you doing this? And I think I saw so many people when I went to university and I went to Cambridge. So it was a high achieving, only high achievers, basically, with all the achievers of the school system. So many people at that point just went, ah, don't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, my, I would include myself in that. We would just be given these very general essay questions. In fact, I remember in our first couple of weeks, we had to generate our own essay question. So we were told, this is the topic, go away, decide on a question, write your essay. I had not a clue how to go about generating my own essay question. I remember being in the library, like looking for books, going, what on earth am I going to do with this? And I wrote a really bad essay and I, I think I might have failed my first one. But we're not it's there's a disconnect at that point because no one is going to do that to you after you're 18. And I think that I do worry that the more controlling things are before you're 18, the more that drop off is going to happen of now what? Now, how do I manage this for myself? Because I've never had to do it before. Yeah, it's interesting. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Naomi stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the Each Villa podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to that spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary includes ideas around diagnoses, behaviour as communication, Naomi's beliefs around the purpose of education, the role of control and autonomy in internally driven motivation, her thoughts on the importance of knowledge and cultural capital, and much more. And this month, I also have a very special announcement for current and future patrons. As we near the five-year anniversary of the Eat Our podcast next month, I've started to collect lots of the most important takeaways from the Eat Our podcast over the past five years, and I'm distilling them into a book that should be out early next year. This book, encapsulating insights from the experts who've been on the podcast over its first half of a decade, will be available for free accepting postage for all $5 or more patrons. And a discount of 50% off will be available for all other patrons. But this offer is only for a limited time, so get in quick. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the Each Will Art Podcast, if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, and if you'd like a free or significantly discounted version of the forthcoming ERRR five-year anniversary book, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the average donation of $5 per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Naomi Fisher. I also want to say to just to listeners, like, I'm wondering if it's confusing to listeners because I was speaking to Sammy and, you know, I was clearly very enthusiastic about his approach and I, and I think it's great, but now I'm speaking to you and I'm saying, oh yeah, maybe there's all these challenges of really controlling approaches and, and being, you know, we'll hear more about um, self-directed learning later. But I think, I guess what I'm trying to do with this podcast and what I just try to do myself in exploring education is just being open to possibilities and different arguments. And I think by doing that, we're, we're put in a place where we can actually take the best 
from all approaches and we can actually, we're actually really well placed to be able to look at the situation we're in and have a, a broader toolbox to draw from to deal with the situation. You know, there, there will be teachers who will listen to this who are just in a situation where they're, you know, their, their job is literally to get students to learn maths. And if they try to do anything else, they're going to get fired. And they may be able to um, stretch things and think about things, but like I think they should, I don't know, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but I, I think it's perfectly reasonable for them to use the tools within their toolbox to help them achieve that end as effectively and as efficiently as possible, um, whilst keeping in mind some of the side effects and maybe starting to tweak things over time and experiment with different ways of things that can hand over more responsibility to students to ameliorate some of the side effects we might have been talking about today. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm endlessly open and curious about how other people do things and why they do them in that way. And, you know, I've, I've read your book. I've spent quite a lot of time understanding cognitive load theory and trying to understand how all of these different systems work in schools and how why people... I'm really fascinated by why people come from the perspective they come from and how that makes sense to them. I mean, when I was listening to Sammy's podcast, I thought probably I would have loved to be in his classroom when I was... Because I loved math. I was just like on fire with maths. I wanted to do maths all the time. And a lot of the time, the kind of other kids in the classroom were an annoyance and a distraction because they might be messing around. And it was clear that there was not much messing around in his classroom. But, and I think that, yeah. So I think there's a place for all of it. I don't think that any of it is wrong in the sense, but I think that always we need to look wider. And I think we need to um, think about the complexity of education and systems and the stuff that goes on around the actual teaching because yeah I mean I think I've said I've said several times if I was going to if I wanted myself to learn a curriculum for an exam that I was going to take in however long time I would use the insights of cognitive load theory to do that you know I would I would take myself through that because it works and I would and if I had a choice about a classroom that I could be in to learn something I'd probably learn choose a classroom where the teacher is really on it and has everything you know that would be my preference but that doesn't mean I think that that's how education should be always, because it's it's kind of a predetermined end there, isn't it? It's like if we want people, if I want to learn this set of information really well, so I can retrieve it really quickly, then this might help me do that. If that's the point of education, well, then that's what you're doing. But if we're thinking about young people and their whole growing up, you know. Personally, I think we can't just focus on how do we get that knowledge in their heads. I don't think that's enough because we're talking about complex people. We're not talking about information processing. They're two different things, but it doesn't mean I think that one is doesn't work or is rubbish. I think it I think it works. It's just it works within its own terms. It helps you remember things. And if but if you've got a group of kids who don't want to do that thing, you haven't got it's a bit like we talked about before, you haven't got the com- common goal at the start. It's the school and the teacher's goal rather than the children's goal, then I think you've got a problem right there. I'm curious, Naomi, so you, you said neither of your children have gone to school. When yeah. did you, but, but clearly you were very successful in school yourself and, you know, you end up in a prestigious yeah. university, you end up getting a, a degree, you may have two PhDs, I'm not yeah. sure, you've got two PhDs, so like you're clearly not someone who struggled in school and therefore, you know, not wanting to send their own kids. How did this all start for you? How did How did this exploration of the I guess we could call the side effects of mainstream schooling start for you and how did you get to the point where you thought I'm actually just not going to send my kids to standard school so lots of things came together one was my PhD 
in, in cognitive developmental psychology, which was all about how children learned through play, how they explored the world, how um, you know they construct knowledge, how knowledge is a kind of coming together of child and adult, all of that sort of stuff. And then I and I went to conferences where people would talk about this, and it would be early years. They talk about how in early years this was being used, and then they'd be like, mm, "Yes," and then they get to five, and it all stops. And I was already thinking at that point, "Why?" You know, where is the where's the cognitive where's the evidence that something changes at five? Then when I had my children, my son is a July birthday, which in this country means you start school young. So you start school aged four. He would have been four and six weeks or something when he started school. And it just felt way too young for me. I thought, you know, and I thought we had an excellent primary school at the end of the road. He had a place there. And I went there and I just thought, you know, even though they're a lovely primary school, clearly they try really hard to have a nice caring ethos. There's phonics class. They, in fact, they gave. I went to the parents' meeting before they, the, the summer before he was meant to start in the September, and they gave us a list of key words that we were meant to teach them over the summer. My son was still three at this point, and it was a list of words like the, but, and, if. And I was like, this is completely abstract. It's like, how am I meant to teach my three-year-old who is? absolutely not interested in reading and writing and academics all that he is interested in is messy play and going to the playground and lego and running around how am i going to do this and i thought i'm going to be drawn into this system and made to make him do things that he doesn't he's not going to see any point in basically what's the lesson here the lesson is adults make you do bizarre things because who wants to learn how to read the and but out of context i mean has no purpose at all <laughs> so that was and i thought and, I, and there are other things about how active he was and his behavior, which I just thought this is not going to fit in well in a mainstream school setting at this point. So I thought, OK, let's step out. We'll just well, we'll do we'll home educate for a few years, basically so that he can have more time to play, because I felt there's no evidence base for stopping play based education at the level we do, you know, in this country. I think it's better if kids are able to carry on playing for a lot longer. So initially we were thinking we'll keep them out to age seven because that seems to be a kind of point of change in development. They children move on from, well, some children do. Anyway, as we did that and he stayed at home and what happened was that basically whilst I had expected that he would do lots of playing and things and that he would kind of progress at the same rate to the kids at school, actually what happened was paths diverged. So it was clear that he was learning really different stuff from the school kids and so when he came to seven it seemed even weird it seemed there was even a bigger mismatch between what I thought he needed and what school because by that point of course what school is offering is a classroom with desks and he was just used to being able to run free so it was like okay actually this isn't going to work now so let's try something else and then I could see that he was learning so much stuff he my, my son is also really into maths but he didn't do any formal maths at all until the age of 12. And when he was about two, we walked along the road and he was looking at some of the numbers. And he said, did you know there are lonely numbers and friendly numbers? And I was like, no, I didn't know. What's that? And he was like, the lonely numbers, one of them doesn't have a friend. The friendly numbers, they all have a friend. I was like, wow, <laughs> where's that come from? And I went home and I started Googling all the, you know, is this something that's on children's TV? Where has he learned this from? Couldn't find any reference to it in anything he'd seen. And I think it was literally him. He discovered odd and even numbers and he's all the time been doing stuff like that so I could see that for him this was just fun and he loved it and every time I tried to get out of maths words but because I would think oh you know he's really good at maths maybe he's like this he'd be like no 
boring. So I was like, okay, why would I want to mess with this amazing self-directed journey that's going on by bringing in my stuff? So I won't. So we'll keep going with this for longer. And then interestingly, his sister came along. She's three years younger than him. She had totally different interests and totally different ways of spending her time. So they both choose how they spend their time, but they do entirely different things. So he's really interested in maths and coding and computers. She's really interested in art and making things and doing stuff. So I could see how their sort of spark went, took them in different directions, but they were both learning stuff all the time. And it's hard, I think, because I do see the, the I, obviously I see the side effects of the system, but I also see even in kids who are happy at school, how much they're being trained to do things that in a way that adults want them to do them. And that hasn't happened for my kids. And I think that's something actually really valuable the, the ability to say, no, actually, this isn't the right thing for me. And I think I, I see that as a kind of fundamental part of what they're learning, the, the, um, the ability to be able to say no as well as yes to things. Mm. That's right. So you've used this word a couple of times, self, self-directed learning. What is, what is self-directed yeah. learning, Naomi? So the way I understand self-directed learning is when the learner is the person who chooses what they learn and the learner is the person who chooses when they stop. So it doesn't actually imply anything about what they might learn or how they might learn it. So if I decided I wanted to go off and do, you know, Russian GCSE, for example, and I thought to myself, I think the best way to do this is to go and get lessons or join a class, then I would consider that self-directed because I've chosen to do it and I can stop if I want to. But I might equally say I think I can learn Russian best by going to Russia. Obviously, that's a bit trickier, but in theory, do you see what I mean? So I have that choice of options. So with them, they choose what they do, but they can also choose how they do it. So if they choose to do something formal, then they choose to do something formal. That's that's fine. That's up to them. And they're actually, so they're not home educated at the moment. They've actually been in self-directed schools or learning settings. This is their fourth year in a learning, in a self-directed school. So they actually go somewhere where other kids are also doing, taking this approach to education. And so my son, who's the mathematician, did no formal maths up to when he was 12. And that was because he wasn't interested in formal maths. He, he played with maths all the time, but he wasn't interested. And then he went to this place that he's at now in Hove, which is a self-managed learning college. And there they have learning advisors who specialize in different topics. And you can say you'd like to do lessons with them or not. It's up to you. But there's also groups that you can join again or not. It's up to you. So he started joining maths and physics and he just loves it. He absolutely is. So he's now, he's one year in to doing any kind of formal maths and he's doing trigonometry and quadratic, quadratic equations. And he's just still on fire with maths. And he's done that in one year. So part of my motivation has always been this feeling that we spend an awful lot of time trying to teach young kids stuff, which they find really difficult. And one of the reasons they find it really difficult is because they're young. And because things for them, like sitting at a desk, is really difficult or listening is really difficult. And actually, if you don't do all of that when they're younger, then when they're a bit older, they're much more ready for it. And it's not it's not anything like as hard as they as you think it might have been. Mm. So what are some of the key principles of self-directed learning? So basically that the learner is responsible. I mean, the, the tenets of self-determination theory are what I think of, that you need the learner needs to be autonomous. So they need to be. And that is not the same as independence. They need to be basically, they need to have self-governance over themselves. So they need to be able to say, yes, I want to learn this. No, I don't want to learn this. Um, they need strong relationships with other people. And I think really, ideally, 
not just with parents, with adults and older older children, younger children. You need to be kind of in a relational context. And then they need to have the opportunities to do things where they can develop skills. So people often kind of caricature self-directed learning as just let them get on with it. Nothing, you know, no, no structure, nothing. But actually, if you see it in practice, it's a really interconnected process with adults and kids. So for, I'll give you an example of how, so my daughter is 10. Until recently, she didn't read, which is actually quite normal for self-directed kids. They learn to read a lot later than um, school kids. Anyway, so she doesn't read. And at the beginning of the summer, she was kind of, you know, she's, we've picked up reading stuff from time to time. I've said, would you like to do this? She's always been like, no, not really interested. But she's been saying increasingly that she'd like to learn to read. Thinks that'd be useful. So at the beginning of the summer, I said to her, okay, would you like me to help you to learn to read this summer? And we could do reading together twice. Every, I suggested we could do it twice every day. And I had these reading books. And she was like, OK, yes, I'd like to learn to read. And we did one day with these reading books. And she said, I don't want to read these reading books. I think I should read Toto the Ninja Cat. I said, OK. I mean, Toto the Ninja Cat is like a, a chapter book. It's a book for six to eight year olds, I think, is the age range. But she's listened to it on audiobook. So she And she said, I think it will be a good book for me to learn to read because I know the stories and I will be a, it will help me. So I was like, actually, that's not a bad idea. So we got Toto the Ninja Cat and we read. And initially we read twice a day. And then so I said to her, we can do this. I'm available for this, but I'm not going to make you do it. It's your choice. So I love and initially I'm going to remind you, but you can always say no. OK, I'm going to remind you. So I'll remind you because, you know, it's a new thing. And I, so I would say to her, would you, I'm here to do reading if you'd like to. And she would say, no, not now. Or she would say, yes, let's do it. And I would also, she also chose how much reading she did. So some days she might do one page. Another day she might do four pages. And then after about two weeks, she started reminding me rather than me reminding her. So she would come and say, I'd like to do reading now. Can we do it now? We'd sit down and do it. And then if we missed it, she'd be like, we didn't do reading yesterday. Why didn't we do reading yesterday? So we started doing it. We're still reading every day. She has learned to read over that summer. So now, and it's been so interesting for me because just through reading Toto the Ninja Cat, we've now finished the first book of Toto the Ninja Cat. We're on to the second book of Toto the Ninja Cat. There are five books. She's planning we're going to read the whole series. I could see right at the start, she really, really struggled. Like every word she struggled with. And I could see very quickly that she couldn't, she didn't know things like she didn't know what apostrophes were. So I had, I told her, you know, it's things like if it says I apostrophe D, it's like I did, but it's they've taken a bit out. Or, you know, if it's W-E apostrophe R-E, it's we are, but they've taken a bit out. So I gave her that information because I could see what she was struggling with. We just give it to her and then leave it. And then we would carry on. And she, I would see her acquiring these skills as she went along. So now it's no problem to read we're and id and, and you know, and she's able to, she, I could see her, the exciting moment for me was when I could see that she was starting to read words that I knew I had not told her what they said. So she started to read words like absolutely and obviously and possibly. I was like, I know I haven't told you how to read that. So you're reading. And as, and as well, she started telling me what things said when we were out and about, which she hadn't done before. So we would be out and she would say, why does that advert say, you know, tired all the time? <laughs> she, why are they, what are they trying to sell us? And it was like the, you could see the world opening up for her. So I would I think, I mean, I count that as self-directed learning, but clearly I'm very involved. I haven't waited for it to happen, but I've 
offered it to her. I continue to offer it to her. I'm offering the support she needs. And if if it would become clear, I mean, I have to say she's 10 and she really couldn't read very much. So part of my mind was going, does she have some kind of issue that I need to help her with? You know, is there, are we going to need some kind of specialist support here? Because she's not learning to read. Her, son, her brother learned to read when he was eight. And if that had become obvious to me as we were reading this book, I would have looked for that help. I would have said to her, maybe you could do with someone else who might know a bit more about reading than me who might be helpful. Would that be useful? And if she'd said yes, I would have brought that in. So it's kind of this much more dynamic process between adult and child than I think people assume it is, where I think people think with reading, for example, the child will just some start reading and then that's it. But it's not like that. It's a process all the time. Mm. Does that does that sort of make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. So we started off there that was an example in, in response to the question, what are the kind of key principles? And the, some of the key yeah. principles you talked about there were autonomy, yeah. choosing what yeah. to learn and having the ability to stop, having connections yeah. and having opportunities. And you've really, you know, given a great example there, your daughter could choose when to start and stop. Um, the, I guess there was a connection with you during that time and then you provided constant opportunities. Another, probably for me, the most interesting thing in there was how she told you, I don't want to use these books, I want to use this other book. Like, because that's a big call. Like, she hasn't she hasn't done a course on how to teach or learn reading. Like, she she just made a decision to learn in that certain way, which is for people who are used to working with schooled children. That's just crazy. Like, when does a student say, "Oh no, actually, these aren't the questions I should be doing to learn this trigonometry. I should be doing these other questions." Like, that's that's actually what you want because it's showing the students kind of like aware of what they know, what they don't know, and what's going to be an appropriate challenge. So this 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 leads into a question that George actually sent me, and he wanted me to ask you, ask you. And what George wrote was: self directed learning requires trusting children with their own education, which is scary because we know that kids can make immature choices. Do children have any underappreciated strengths in making good decisions for their learning? Well, that's a really interesting. I mean, I think. And I, I also think that that point with my daughter was the moment when I was like, wow, this really is self-directed, you know, because it was like I also was stunned by her awareness that actually this would be a good book to read because she'd heard the audio book and she would the words would be recognized. by her. I was I was blown away by it because I was like, that's a much better idea than my idea, which was this reading scheme. <laughs> anyway, so I think we learn to make decisions through making decisions. Yeah. So. Adults often say, I can't trust my child to make decisions because they will not make the same decisions that I would make for them. It's really what they mean when we say they'll make poor decisions. And obviously, there are really poor decisions, which I think children need to be prevented from making, like, you know, running in front of the car or uh, taking drugs or drinking alcohol, that kind of thing when they're young. I think that's fine to say, sorry, that's not a decision you are ready to be able to take. But I think generally, we do, we learn these things by doing them. And I would rather that my children are getting lots of opportunities to make not so great decisions when they're quite young and develop the capacity to do it than that I take that capacity away from them. And then when they're 18, I kind of give it back to them because off they go. And now they've got to make these big decisions, which actually have life altering consequences. You know, what better time to make not great decisions than when you're under 10? Because someone's there to mop it up for you. Someone's there to help. I mean, my children have many times chosen not to do things that I think they would really enjoy. 
And I really struggled with this early on. It's like, you know, I find these great opportunities for you. And you're like, nope, I'd rather stay at home. <laughs> but actually, now looking back, I see that as a really important part of the process. Because I see, I think unless somebody is able to say no to something, they're not really able to say yes. They're not able, you know, if, if when I offer an opportunity to my children, I say, like, I think, would you like to go to this theatre production? Or would you like to go to this exhibition? And they say yes then I know that they really mean, yes, they might be interested. They're not saying yes because they know I would prefer it if they said yes, which I think when I think back to my own childhood, I think a lot of my decisions were actually made on what did my parent or my school want me to say here? And I remember, in fact, getting to um, university and being basically quite paralysed with anxiety about what they wanted me to say. We would have these little supervision groups and we would be asked any questions. And I would know that it wasn't just about any questions because there were stupid questions and there were intelligent questions and they wanted the intelligent questions. They didn't <laughs> want the questions like, I don't know, I have no clue what this is about, right? <laughs> and so I was literally, and I remember, I don't think I was alone in this. I think we were all like that because, you know, Cambridge was a place of, well, of high achievement, but also exposure. You felt very exposed relative to your peers. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, I actually don't understand this topic at all, but there's no way I can say that. I have to say, what about the such and such? Or, you know, what about this research paper? Because that's what they want to hear. And so I suppose what I'm hoping my children develop through making decisions is a sense of actually what's the important question here for me? Or what's the important decision here for me? And I think you can only learn that by making decisions that maybe you look back on and you're like, actually, I'm not sure that was the best decision. But I was allowed to make it. Yeah. Does that sound sort of, so I think it's not, but I also think that young, that children can be far more self-reflective than we give them credit for. I think if you, in fact, I think if you listen to quite young children, even four or five, they can be very self-aware about the effect of their environment on them, for example. But then I think we sort of squash that because they go to school and we tell them, it doesn't matter if you don't like it. You've got to keep going. It doesn't matter if you think you're not learning anything here. You've got to keep going. And so we sort of push that out the way. Whereas actually, if we were able to listen to them, they're very, they're usually very insightful about what's good and what's not. It's like your example with the student with trigonometry. It reminds me of myself at um, secondary school because I moved to secondary school all these times. I came back. We lived in a, this international, I went to this international secondary um, school, American school. We came back and I went to a British comprehensive school. And the level was really different. I knew that I wasn't learning anything in all of the lessons because I was, the, the school in the Congo had just been, it was just much more difficult. But also they had put me in all kinds of sort of accelerated classes. So I'd done extra maths and extra this and all this. I came back and it was like, I'm not learning anything here. And I actually said to both my parents and to one of the teachers, I'm not learning anything. And they both pushed back on it and said, oh, you know, I think you just haven't, you know, you haven't thought about this or, you know, and in fact, I remember one teacher, I said, I'm not learning anything here. The work was much harder at my old school. And she said, you don't mean harder. You just mean different. <laughs> and I felt like this kind of invalidation of my decisions and my insight was there all the time because for the teachers, what mattered more was what they wanted me to be doing. What they wanted me doing really was be quiet and get on with going to this le these lessons. So I'm not sure if that answers George's question. Yeah. Sure. Well, no, I think well, the, so. The main point there was people get good at making decisions by making decisions, and it's good. It's important for us to allow young people to make decisions when they're young, and the consequences yeah. are lower than waiting till they're. We can we can pick them up, can't we? we yeah. As a parent or a teacher, we can help them out.
Yeah, I, I think maybe what George was getting at is, you know, is there something about young people that pl- better places? Well, here's here's the thing. Like a reference I often read is that you know lots of people suggest children are poor judges of their own learning, or children are poor make poor choices in terms of what to learn. And you know, if if this is true then self-directed learning makes absolutely no sense, right? Because then they just choose the wrong thing all the time and then they'll never learn anything and they'll just, they'll just you know, they won't never learn anything. So you're obviously operating from a completely different assumption, which is that the people that you, the young people you work with, your children, they know more about what they need to learn than you as their parent do, which is pretty, pretty radical. Like, you know, you're literally putting it all in their hands. So I, another way to ask the question George has is like, what gives you so much faith that your student, your young people, your children know better what they need to learn than you do? So, I mean, I suppose the first thing is that I do definitely have an overarching thing of what I think they need to learn in terms of what I provide in their environment. So, for example, I think it's, I do think it's important they learn to read and I've surrounded them in books and reading and all that kind of thing from an early age. And there's a, there's a picture of Africa behind you with all the flags yeah. there. You've got heaps of books. you got, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I've, so, so there's definitely, it's not a passive process on the part of the parent or of a self-directed educator at all. It's a very active process. But I think ultimately, I think that nobody actually can make somebody else learn something or want they can make you go through the motions but they cannot make you want to do it it's just not possible to make somebody else want to do something in the longer term right then you can say if you do this i'll give you a packet of chocolate buttons and they'll do it often or you know with children in school we can do that for a long time we can say if you get these grades we'll you'll you do this, we'll give you these grades. Do this, we'll give you exam results. But in the long term, we can't make them actually enjoy and love what they're doing. And to me, that is that is key. So I suppose that's part of where the confidence comes from, that I think that's important. That And I can't make that happen. I have to just create the, this sort of situation for that to happen. But when people say, I think, you know, children make poor choices or children can't be trusted, I think they're often coming from a mindset where they're like, they have to do these things. You know, it's like, if you say, if you have in your mind, all children should do maths GCSE at age 16, for example, and then you say to the kids, you can choose what you do. And then you get to maths GCSE time and half of them have not chosen to do maths GCSE. You might well say, ah, oh, poor choices on the part of those kids. But that's because you have defined the outcome. You've already said, I think these are the good, important choices. I don't really buy into that model that we know what the best choices are. I think there are some things that we do. So, I mean, as I said, there are boundaries like not breaking windows or not um, smoking and drinking, that kind of thing. But I think in terms of learning, I don't think there's one set of information which is intrinsically the right stuff to learn. And I think it's more important that children keep that kind of drive of what is it I want to learn? Because we actually have this trust with young kids. You know, it's just not possible to make a young child learn stuff. You can provide the opportunities, but generally, I don't know how much time you spend with young children, but they're very, um, they have very well-developed sense of what their interests are. So I think where my confidence in my children came from was seeing that as young children, that they had this amazing drive to be part of society, to learn the things that I did, to copy me. You know, they want if they saw me cooking, they wanted to cook, too. If they saw me reading a book, they would come and pretend to read a book, too. So I think I have this strength. I have this belief that humans 
want to be part of society. They want to be, they want to learn. They know learning is fun. And I see that in young children. Why wouldn't I continue to trust my children with that? Do you see what I mean? It's more like a, I just can't see why there would suddenly be that disconnect. But that doesn't mean that I don't talk to my children about things they might want to do or might need to do. So say, you know, if my children want to go to university or want to, if they say like, for example, I want to be a doctor, teacher, psychologist, whatever, then I would say to them, so in order to do that, you'll need to go to university. And if you want to go to university, you'll probably need to get some other exams at some point. So you might want to think about how you would do that. And I can help you think about that if you want me to. So it's not that that information isn't there. It's that the element of I'm going to make you do it isn't there. And I think it's something that as the kids get older, I see it's hard when they're younger. I think it's this kind of thing is hardest when they're younger. And it's hard for people who are very immersed in school to imagine what it's like with older kids, because the only kids that we really know who are self-directed usually are young kids. So we imagine that this kind of stage of flitting around, playing, no, you know, no focus on anything carries on and that schooling is what makes the difference. But actually what I see in the kids around me, the self-directed kids, is that they are much they're play based for much longer. They're much, they're much less focused on skill development at a younger age. That is undeniably true. They are, you know, they don't learn to read as early as a schooled kids who often. They're not really that interested necessarily in practicing things. But then they become, they kind of get to puberty and it's, you can see a change, a shift happen. And then all those years of making choices and of being the decision maker and of being able to say no kind of pay off. Because now they're like, okay, I'm the driver of this. So and to give another example, my son, he is learning the piano. And he had a few, he hasn't had piano lessons. He had a few piano lessons at the at college. And um last like 18 months ago, he started playing oh, when the Saints Go Marching In, right? It's like a five-finger piece, just and he was really laborious about it. He couldn't read music and he was trying to memorize it and oh my goodness he would practice this thing and it would just be like painful and i was like wow i wonder who he's going to be playing when the saints go marching in forever <laughs> because it felt a bit like that anyway and then we bought him a keyboard for christmas with headphones so i couldn't hear anymore what he was practicing and then it became clear that he was starting to play chords that he was practicing he got this app called simply piano and he was working through it for hours every day by himself. We now have pianos, so I can hear him doing it. And the the development that he has made in the piano over the summer is just amazing. So he's now playing with both hands, with chords. He's playing all kinds of pieces. And um, both the neighbours on both sides of our house have both commented to me on the piano playing and have said, luckily they've said how lovely it sounds. But they have both said, how do you get him to practice so much? How do you get it? You know, he's doing it every day. I wish I could get my kids to do this never ever said to him he needs to practice I have never just never and I know in fact with my son I know that if I did start to put the pressure on he would probably stop so I have a real well-developed sense of the undesired side effects of the pressure do you see so I think maybe with George's question that's almost it's almost the other way around it's not so much that I I do trust them to make decisions but I also know the negative impact of me not trusting them Mm. and I can see that clearly yeah that's really powerful who is self-directed learning for, in terms of parents listening to this, who is it for and who is it not for? Well, I think it can, I mean, I think it's something that ideally all adults are doing. So I think it can be for anybody. And I think, as I said, I think all young children are doing it. If you mean in terms of who would it be for in the education system, is that what you mean? Like young people? I mean, 
parents are listening or if teachers are thinking about students in their class or if, you know, we just ask this as a, as a general question, who do you think it's reasonable to consider taking their kids out of school, for example, and who shouldn't take their kids out of school? I think if your child is really unhappy at school, then it's really worth thinking about. And I think if there's somebody, if your child is somebody who really doesn't take well to control, because I think there's a spectrum of this as well. Like, I mean, I don't think any human work, works well really being controlled, but I would say, say someone like myself, I enjoyed school. I enjoyed school to the point that I would have chosen to go to school. And therefore, my, I don't think my motivation was damaged in the way that it was for some others. Because the stuff they were doing at school generally interested me, you know, apart from a couple of schools. And I, I went to 11 schools. So one of my schools I absolutely hated, really, really hated, didn't want to be there. And I, in fact, stopped going. Was that the comprehensive one in England? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But generally, I enjoyed school. I wanted to be there. I liked my teachers. My teachers liked me. So, in fact, the conditions for self-directed learning were there, although I didn't have a choice and I, I did have to go. And I think those kids are probably going to go through the system and be okay. The ones who I'm worried about and the ones who I, where I really hope that both parents and teachers know there are other ways of learning are the ones who, A, are completely switched off by the whole school system, or they're the ones who resist. And, you know, they're the, I know parents who have to force their kids in in the morning, for example. I think if you're forcing your kid into school every day, I would take a step back and think, is this really worth it? What damage am I doing to the relationship between my child and me here? And because basically your the whole emphasis can get to the point where all that matters is being in school and doing the stuff you're meant to do in school. And we don't think about, for example, how unhappy you are about that or how distressed you become after school or how overwhelmed you are after school. So I'd say if your child falls into that category, then I would be thinking, Maybe there's something else. Maybe we could try a different way here. I mean, there's, it's not just home education is one way of self-directed education. But as I said, my kids have actually been in, are actually a self-directed. It's not a school because it can't be a school in the UK, but it's like a learning setting. They go there every day. And there are learning settings. I think there are some in Australia as well, democratic schools where kids can do this kind of thing in a school. So it's not just, you know, I don't think everybody can home educate. And I don't think it's the right thing for lots of parents to home educate. I do think we need, many parents need somewhere where kids go. But I think you can look for places which maybe work on a different ethos, where maybe relationships are at the core of things and where kids are allowed to say no. And I think that can really transform the, the experience of education for some young people. Like uh, both, the, both the learning settings where my kids have been, you hear stories and I hear stories of kids who come out of the mainstream system and who are really withdrawn, really unhappy. And they, you know, their parents are, at that point, I think people's priorities change because everybody kind of maybe goes into school thinking my child's going to do really well. You know, we're going to they're going to be a genius or whatever. Or they're going to get great exam results. And then for some parents, there's this process of, wow, this is actually more about can we just get through this because they're so unhappy and the whole family is unhappy because they're so unhappy. And I think you then hear a story of these kids who come out and often for quite a long period, they're quite withdrawn and quite unhappy. And then they start to emerge. And it's they're magical. They're a bit like kind of stories of coming out of a chrysalis. You know, you sort of hear that just step by step, they start to reconnect with what they felt was important again. And I think for those kids, absolutely, I think self-directed education is, it's almost like it's the only way to go because they, they require it. They need something where they're 
sort of central being is at the heart of what they do. That's a good segue into uh, what is de-schooling? So de-schooling is the process when, when you come out, well, it's two processes really. It's the process when you come out of school. Basically, when you're at school, you learn a schooled way of thinking. So we learn all kinds of things. And John Taylor Gatto talks about the hidden curriculum of, you know, we learn at school that the teachers are no more than the young people, for example, that the experts can judge everybody else's work. We learn that we have to behave in certain ways. There's a whole hidden curriculum of what we learn. And when you come out of school, it's, that kind of has to be unlearned. You have to somehow allow yourself to move beyond that because otherwise what happens is you come out of school and you spend all your time worried about what you're missing at school. Because, of course, school tells you that, right? They say you're missing, you know, there's been a huge thing here with the schools in lockdown of all this lost learning that kids are missing out on and panic, panic. They've got each day at school is so important. And kids come out of school and they still believe all of that. So in order to take a different way of learning, both they and their parents need to kind of unpick all those layers of belief. So they maybe need to unpick the idea that you can only learn these things if you're in a classroom being taught stuff, that that's the best way to learn. Or they need to unpick this idea that perhaps children can't make good choices and that what children want to learn about matters less than what adults want them to learn. And that process is de-schooling. And it can't, I think for parents and adults, it usually involves reading lots of books and maybe meeting other families who've taken this approach so that they can start to see that there is a different way of thinking about education. For kids, it often just means a long time of not no pressure, because kids who are unhappy in school feel under pressure. Whatever they're, however they've reacted to it, they usually just feel, you know, inundated by pressure and also feelings of failure. So it's really important for them to have this period where they can start to connect with what's important to them. And I think it's important for their parent to connect with that as well. So often when a child's really unhappy in school, their parent puts a lot of resources into keeping them in school. You know, that's what the focus is. You have meetings with therapists and you're going around and you kind of get them in every morning. You talk to the teacher and there's a whole thing of let's keep this child in school. And it's hugely exhausting for parents and the child. So if you come out of school, then I, I say to parents, how about if you put some of that energy into finding out what interests your child and joining them with that? So doing that with them. So if what they love is video games, see if you could play a video game with them. Learn how to play the video games they love. Or if what they love is, you know, making models with polymer clay, do that. If what their passion is, is escape rooms, let's do that. Do you see? So that sort of Put, the, put it in a, rather than putting all this focus into how do I make them do something, put the focus into what is it you love to do and let's find that. Let's find that space again, which we probably had when you were a young child, that sense of these are the things you love mm. and let's do that together. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. I think I think one of the other things that struck me about the the de schooling idea was like the kind of decompression side of it. Yeah. And what it might actually look like for for example a 15-year-old whose parents finally realize that maybe school isn't the best place for them and and bring them out. What what can that look like? So for 15-year-olds, yeah, for 15-year-olds they're going to have a lot of a lot of schooled thinking. You know, they've been told for 15 years and they've often been told for 15 years that it's them that's at fault, the reason school isn't working for them. So I think there's often just a period of shutdown, actually. And I think it can be really frightening for parents because it's like, you know, they were getting this child or this young person out the door every morning. And now suddenly we're stopping and they don't want to do anything. They're just like, no, leave me alone. And I think that period is quite important to be able for them just to be. It's like them reestablishing their boundaries, really, because I think for some children, 
being made to go to school can feel like a repeated boundary violation. You know, they want to say no and they're not allowed to say no. So you're kind of saying to them, to the young person, okay, I'm sorry that I haven't listened to you saying no all this time and I am going to listen now. And you have, they have to trust, they have to, they have to trust that you're not going to make them go back when they feel better. Because what I see a lot with kids and their parents is this kind of idea of, right, school's so bad, you know, maybe the child's suicidal even. We'll take the child out of school. The moment the child starts to emerge from that very, very dark place, everybody's like, great, let's get you back into school. (laughs) And so the child gets stuck. They can't get better because being better means going back to school. So I think it's just very important for parents to be able to say, whatever happens, we're not going to go back. We're going to find a different way for you to do what you want to do. And you can still succeed. You're like, do you, because that's something you recognize. That's that sort of Well, no, it's just like, it's like a catch-22 kind of situation, isn't it, really? Like, if there's that trap set for the students that, or the young person that they can't, they can't, they literally can't get better because it means they'll go back there. Yeah. They can't. Yeah. So that's why you can only decompress. And that's why you can't really decompress in the holidays because you need to know I'm not going to be made to do this again. Yeah. Now in, in, your, in your book, you dealt with a lot of Q and A's and one of the questions, actually, before I jump on that, you, you mentioned in the book as well that you've, at the start of the Q and A section that you've spent a lot of time answering questions on forums, self-directed learning forums. Tell tell us about that. So there are big Facebook groups where people discuss this all the time. And I don't, I'm not actually, I don't participate so much in them anymore because I'm not a home educator anymore, but in the UK and probably in Australia, there are, there are Facebook groups where people are all going through this process together and they ask, they ask these kind of questions of each other all the time. So it's actually, for us, when we started off home education, that was where we found our community. Because the thing about doing this kind of learning is it's really, you know, it's unlikely you're going to meet people in the next couple of streets doing the same thing. So you need to be looking at a wider community to get your ideas from and get your inspiration from, because otherwise you'll just be doing it by yourself. And that isn't great. You need to have that community. So we were, yeah, so we got to know lots of people through through these groups. And then people would be asking all the time, how, what's what about this? What do we do about this? So I got to know and then I, so I also, I have that. And then I also have my clinical work where people come to me and I, I see quite a lot of parents now whose kids are either unschooled or in a self-directed learning setting. So I also, I know the kind of things people get caught up with. Mm. I'd also say if there are people in Australia who are part of those Facebook groups who are listening or people in the UK as well, if you send me the, the link to your Facebook group or the address or something, I'll add it to the show notes. So when other mm-hmm. people come to the site, mm-hmm. they can find that. There's an association for democratic education in Australia, which I can send you the link for. Great. We'll put that in the show notes as well. And also, I think, for home educating, uh, yeah, I can send you the links for both those things. That'd be awesome. So, yeah, listeners can find on the on the site pages that are relevant. And if you've got some that you'd like to send through for me to add to the page as well, very happy to do that. So, that was kind of a prelude to, to this next question, which was you mentioned that when you were on those sites, often the comments that parents make a lot of the time is, oh, you know, we took our kid out of school and they're just wasting time. They're just playing computer games and it's been four months and they're just playing computer games all day. And, you know, I've seen comments on Twitter about people um, commenting in response to Peter Gray's writings and things like that saying, I know what I would have done if I didn't have non-time watch shows, I would have played computer games. Where would that have got me? So what's your response to that? Well, for a start, I think that computer games are amazing in terms of what you can learn from them. And I know Peter Gray writes about this, that you can learn an awful lot from video game. I think, I mean, as I always, I'd say it's always complex. I think that 
if a young person is playing video games all the time because they don't have other options and because actually there isn't very much in their environment that they can do. And I think that can be the case for a teenager who comes out of school, because if they come out of school, maybe both parents work because the teenager is old enough to be at home by themselves. They don't know anybody who doesn't go to school. They're sort of stuck all day by themselves. Then I think they might well play video games. and But then I don't think that's necessarily, it's not that they... In that case, it's not necessarily a positive choice. So basically what I'm saying is when someone plays video games, I think there are different reasons why they might play it. If they are playing video games because they absolutely love it and it is, you can see that they're engaged and they're learning and they're like, you know, it's like gets sets them on fire and they're choosing to do that because they just cannot think of anything better to spend their time doing and they have other opportunities available to them, then I personally wouldn't be worried about that. What I would be worried about is the kind of bored, amotivated, disengaged child who's like, I don't think of anything else to do to do this. And then I would be thinking about how can I get alongside them more? How can I maybe play? Okay, maybe I need to play those games with them. Maybe I need to watch their YouTube videos with them. Maybe I need to think about, could I find somebody else? I think you always need to start where the young person is, basically. So you need to think about, okay, if I'm, wor- if I'm worried about them, why am I worried about them? Because the video games in this case is a symptom. It's not... When we talk about addiction, I know you, you think about this, people often focus on the thing that somebody is doing as if that's the problem. Yeah. So they'll say, but video games are addictive. You know how. But, but the thing is that there are all sorts of substances in our environment which are potentially addictive. You know, alcohol, obviously, is addictive. But what makes the difference between someone who is, in quotes, addicted and someone who isn't is them and why they're doing something rather than the substance. Do you see what I mean? Video games are not so addictive that everybody who starts playing a video game will never do anything else. It's not that that's the problem. But if you are very unhappy and you have nowhere else that you feel good about yourself, and the only way that you can get a sense of autonomy, connectedness and competence, for example, is in a video game, then you may well be playing a video game all the time because actually that you don't have that other opportunity. But the problem isn't really the video game. The problem is your lack of life, the lack of other things in your life, and maybe the fact that you don't feel good about yourself in any other situation. So that's what I would be trying to address rather than saying, right, ban those video games. Because I think what often happens in that situation, and when I see parents talking about that, is that the video game might be the only place the child feels good. And if you take away that, then suddenly you've you've taken away their good place, and now they don't have anywhere where they feel good. And if you haven't addressed the reason why that is, then you just make things worse. I think, And you also make things worse because what you do is you set up a, com- a controlling and combative relationship between you and the child. You know that you are the person who's going to take away this thing. And that is only something that can go on for a very limited amount of time. If you were thinking about a 15 year old, for example, they've only got a few more years in any way where you have that level of control over them. So it's a limited it's a limited strategy. It's a time limited strategy. And again, a bit like we've talked talk about with everything, I would be thinking beyond this and say, what damage am I doing to my relationship with the child by saying, right, that's it, I'm banning video games. Because I know that when they're 18, they'll be able to do, they'll be able to choose to play video games all the time if they want to, because they'll be grown up. And but what but by that point, I've established that this is how I'm going to interact with you. Do you see what I mean? So I would be looking for how can I get alongside them? If I'm concerned, if I was concerned about one of my children and how much they were using video games, I would be getting alongside them, but then I will be talking to them about what's going on. And are they, you know, do they feel that they have other choices? 
for I think kids nowadays, for example, it's really hard for them to socialise in any way. They can't get out themselves and meet other young people. So actually a video game, when they play online, is their social space. It's where they're meeting other kids. So I'd be wanting to think about what are all the functions that this is fulfilling for them and are they happy with it? Is this what they want to be spending their time doing or are they doing this because they can't think of anything else? And then I'd be wanting to help them with that. Have you have you worked with or been in touch with any, I mean, first of all, everything you say there makes a lot of sense. That Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me actually of um, a couple of things. One is an idea that, again, George Zolios introduced me to from the writing of Piotr Wozniak, who's the guy who started Super Memo. And I believe he's kind of homeschooled his child and things like that. But this is the idea of reward diversity. So just having multiple sources from which you can get reward. And so you're not just getting your dopamine hit from one particular place. From your video game. Yeah, which relates to the diverse opportunities. And it also relates to Bruce Alexander's Rat Park experiment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you'll you'll probably know more about that than me. Did you want to talk a little bit about that experiment? That experiment specifically, I'm not going to be able to give you a detailed rundown of, but the idea of it is that with the rats who, they had rats in different environments and the rats who had a fun environment full of stimulation and excitement were less likely, I think it was to be addicted to cocaine, wasn't it? There's yeah, something like anyway. Cocaine or heroin was like one yes. of the, a very addictive drug, yeah. Drugs that we, really strong drugs, drugs that we would consider to be highly addictive. And so the point of the, the experiment was to say that, yes, these, these substances are addictive, but we don't, even rats who are presumably have a slightly less complicated decision-making process than humans, choose to do other things if those are available to them in their environment. And whereas the rats who were in the boring, no stimulation, nothing else to do, they all went for the drugs. And I think we see that or we see that in our society all the time. So I would be looking with self-directed education. And I think you also see, sorry, with school kids, if school kids feel disempowered, lack of autonomy, unhappy at school, then video games can be the place where they feel good. And they have different relationships with people and they feel powerful. I saw this with my kids when they were younger. We used to play Minecraft a lot together. Minecraft is just this amazing game, but so full of potential, but also a, a place where kids can be so powerful. They can build houses. They can grow farms. They can do all this kind of stuff. And I can see how for a child who doesn't have that feeling in school, this would be, this would be a particular draw because this is the only place I can feel these things. And so, yes, so in self-directed education, I'd be looking for kids to have all sorts of options. I mean, so both my children have no limits on how much they can play video games. We've always not had limits on how much they can play. They both have iPads. We have a Switch. My son has a computer. They both do an enormous amount of other things. In fact, my daughter in particular does, you know, the majority of what she does would not be on a screen. And when she does use a screen, she uses it for things like she looks up stuff to make do her art with, or she watches art tutorial videos, or there's a very kind of integrated way that they use technology because it's freely available to them. And I think they wouldn't do that. If I was saying this is an hour a day, then she might be like, well, I want to use my hour a day to play this game. So I can't look up my art tutorial videos. And I'd actually be blocking her learning there. Because in unintentionally, because it's just so much integral integral part. I mean, so my son, he's basic. He's learning the piano from Simply Piano. It's an app. So in a way, all of his piano time is screen time. <laughs> but he's spent and he's spending hours a day playing the piano. And for him, obviously, the piano is rewarding enough. 
that he wants to do that, again, even though he has free access to video games, should he want to play them. So I don't believe that video games are this draw that is so strong that it will prevent young people from doing other things. Yeah. Um, in your travels and your time on forums and stuff, have there been any parents who just, their kids just did play video games and they followed, you know, your advice, the advice of other people and their kids just played video games all the time and never learned anything? Well, have there been those cases? There certainly have not been anyone who never learned anything because you can learn an enormous amount from video games. I mean, I know many children who've learned to read through Minecraft, for example. Minecraft very conveniently puts the words under many blocks. So I know kids who learned to read the word obsidian before they learned to read words like cat, because in Minecraft, there's a block that says obsidian under it. And in Minecraft as well, you can type chat to other people. So I know many kids, the first time they produced, in fact, my own son, the only t first time he produced any text, he typed hello to me and I was playing Minecraft. We were both playing Minecraft together on tablets. So I don't know any kids who just don't learn anything. In fact, I don't even know what that would look like. I can't <laughs> imagine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> good. Yeah, that's good. That's a good, that's a good first response. Yep. I think parents often feel like that's going to happen. But I do think, and I've said this before, that when you put the pressure on, unfortunately, you make it more likely because you make it more likely that they won't be able to develop their own. If you put the pressure on a sense of, I'm going to stop you doing this, you are not going to be allowed to do this, you immediately make something more desirable. A forbidden thing is immediately more desirable. So you can, I think parents and kids can get into this kind of scenario where the parents are trying really hard to control it, the kids are really pushing back, and that can be the focus of all of their all of their energy. And it's a bit like the school thing. If all the focus of your energy is getting your child into school, you don't have much left for providing other opportunities, for doing other things, for, you know, just exploring the world together. So if that's the case, if parents are doing this all the time with their kids over video games, then I'd be like, step back from it because it's not, you're not going to win this battle. Even if you win it in the short term, you know, you can, you can obviously win it in the short term. You're not going to win it in the long term because they are going to grow up and they're going to be their own person. And you don't really want to this to have been this amazing forbidden fruit, which they can't wait to be 18 so they can play all day on. Again, I'd actually rather my kids play all day on video games when they're 10, 11, 12 than 18, 19, 20. I think it's a better time to do that. So I suppose it's just a different way of seeing childhood as a chance to explore all these things. And, and you know, my son now, so my son had a phase of playing all day on video games. And then he started saying, you know, I don't feel very good when I spend all day on video games. I don't spend, like, I sit down all day, I don't feel very good about it. And so I said to him, oh, I know that if I, I feel better if I go and get exercise every day and get out of the house every day, would you like to do that together? He's like, yes. And now, basically, like yesterday, we had an exhausting day. He came at 4.30 and he said, I haven't done, had enough exercise today. Would you like to come for a walk with me? And I'm like, oh gosh, okay. But he, pretty well every day, he's like, come on, let's go out for a run, let's go out for a walk, let's go bouldering. He's internalized that. So I don't, I don't make it happen. I, I suggest it to him and that's that. How do you, um, like I'm listening to you and I, I feel like, you know, I haven't got kids, but I imagine when I have kids, you, parents have expectations that they, they want their kids to learn things. They want them to be able to do things. They want, you know, there's a, there's, there's an ego involved there, but there's also the worry. How, how do you have this kind of outlook or this like just such a, I mean, I kind of asked you the question already, like, but I think I need to ask it again because I still don't quite understand how you have this, this, you know, how you give your kids so much freedom. I think that maybe the difference between before you have kids and after you have kids is that when you have kids, you're confronted with the reality of your 
actual children and how different they are to perhaps who you expected that they would be. Um, you know, that they would go to school, they would thrive, they would do really well, and that would be the kind of family we were. And then quite early on, I began to see my son and I began to think, this, this I don't think this is going to fit, fit. You know, he's really different to what I was expecting and he's really unpersuadable. So, you know, I sort of expected young children, I'd be able to kind of push them into what they wanted to do. He was like, no, he. I, I sometimes say he was. He was the most amazing gift because he had the most, be, the best pressure and control detector of any person I know. So I would say things to him, and he would respond, and he would know that I was controlling. So, a great example. I would look out the window, and I would say it stopped raining, and he would be like, no. And I'd be like, what have I said? And he would be saying no because he knew that implicit in my it stopped raining was shall we go out to the park? <laughs> shall we go to the playground? And he was doing that all the time to me. And it was amazing because I was picking up on all these things I was saying, which, you know, were how people parent. You manipulate kids all the time. You do things all the time that you're kind of, or I would say things like, would you like an ice cream? And he'd be like, no, you can't force me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I wasn't going to force anybody. But I was also, I was kind of trying to manipulate him with it you know because people do that if we come you come to the park we can have an ice cream if you come and do this we'll do this he was right from the start he's like I'm not having any of this I'm not you know stop controlling me so that really I think helped me come through the process quicker than I might have done yeah that's good I had, a, I had an interesting thing with um a, a daughter of some of my friends she spent the last year out of school just because she wasn't really enjoying school and her parents had a, had enough courage to take not not send her there I think she was about eight or something and I went to their place and they live on like a in an intentional community and I was I was setting up my tent I said oh Jill um you know what's we were, talk, we were putting on the fly or something and she she didn't know what it was called and I was like oh that's called the fly and she's like okay and then a few minutes later when we finished setting up the tent I was like do you remember what this thing's called and she said why are you doing that <laughs> and I was like doing what she's like you're being like a you teacher. Were teaching her. <laughs> yeah. I was like, um, just because I'm checking if you remember. She's like, don't do that. <laughs> just like, okay. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> that's such a great example. And that's exactly what I see in kids outside school. They're like, why? Why are you, why are you making me do this? Yeah. Or why are you pushing me through these things? And it's your agenda, really, isn't yeah. it? You wanted to test. Did she still know about the word fly? She's like, no. Yeah. And that's a really great example, actually, of the kind of different interaction that you have with kids who don't go out, who don't go to school, which you just don't have with schooled kids because they're completely used to it. And they it just want to please you. To yeah. And I mean, maybe one of the reasons she was unhappy at school, I'm just hypothesizing, but maybe she was one of these kids like my son, really, really attuned to, to control. And I think there are some kids who are just born like that. They're just really good at picking out when other people are trying to manipulate them. And they're like, no, thank you. And that they really don't mesh well with the school system. Yeah. But they're amazing outside of it because they're so like, this is, you know, they, they tell it. My son just brought me up against my own controlling nature all the time. And it was just amazing. That's great. Well, we'll, we'll see if my kids uh, have that have that pressure sensor in the same way as yours too. Probably be good for me. Naomi, what's your, what's your vision for what? You know, looking beyond your own kids and, and you know, to, to the wider school system, what is your vision for what our education system could look like? So, I mean, I would love there to be more diversity of options, basically. I think, you know, although there are different kinds of schools, many schools are very similar in their ethos. They don't challenge things like the idea that children need to be made to do what 
parents think, you know, the teachers think they should do and that children make poor choices. They're not really based on neuroscientific research, I don't think. They're not based on the idea that you learn by doing what you're doing. And therefore, we need to think about all these higher order skills as well as the, the knowledge, because that is what you're learning through going to school. So, I mean, I would like to see places like the place my kids go to as an option for everybody, because it's just such a great, you just, I just see how kids come alive there. And it's just this simple thing of you are in charge of this. We're going to offer you these things, but you don't have to do them. And that's your decision. And it, I think it's a magical moment for lots of kids who come out of school because they just can't believe it at first. They're like, you're really not going to make me do maths if I don't want to do it. And they're like, no, we're really not going to make you do it. That's up to you. And I think if we had places like that where parents could choose that, particularly, I mean, I think for younger kids, I think we need more play-based places that they can go where it's play-based for a lot longer. That would be my ideal, where we're not pushing them into academic learning so early. For older kids, I think it would be great to have places where you can go meet other interested adults who can teach you things if you want to be taught them, but who aren't going to force you and who are going to make sure that their relationship with you is kind of at the foundation of it. So you are having your world expanded all the time through these connections with other people and through this stuff. So you kind of get a sense of the world as a place where there's op- I can I can make things happen. I can have opportunities and I can learn. So I think I would love it if that kind of option was open to every, you know, every every school district had some places like that. So that for the kids who like the traditional school, fine. But for those who don't, I would like it to be a kind of equal status thing of, you know, there are these other ways you can do it. It doesn't have to be like that. Or alternatively, you can also do, you know, you can be educated at home. Some people are not well suited to large groups and just spending all day in a group. They just find that too much at different stages of their life. And I think that should be okay. We shouldn't, I would like it if education was separate from all the other requirements of school, you know, so that we could believe that we quite deep in our psyche is the idea that going to school is the same as being educated. And I would like it if we could separate those things. So like traditional school is one way of being educated, which works for some people, but there are other ways. You don't have to, because I think that would solve a lot of the issues that I see, you know, the people who come to me later down the line with the sense of failure, of inadequacy, of not being good enough. Because if you could see that it was one of many options, there would no longer be this thing of why don't you fit into the system? It's because there's something wrong with you. There would be a, why don't, well, you don't fit into this system. So let's find something else. That's, that's kind of my vision. That sounds great. Who are, who are three tweeters that you'd uh, recommend people check out, Naomi? Well, I was thinking about this. I would recommend, oh, Missing the Mark. I don't know if you've come across Missing the Mark. She's an illustrator who writes, she does, she does, she does drawings of her experience with her daughter at school, basically. And it's, I think it's really useful to see as the, the kind of parent's eye, but because she, she's an illustrator, she just kind of encapsulates things in a really lovely way. And then there's also someone called Bruce L. Smith, who is a Sudbury School kind of advocate. And he often posts things about Sudbury schools are self-directed schools. They're mostly in America, but they're also all over the world. And he often posts useful articles about self-directed education. And then there's also someone called Ira Sokal, who is sort of working with these ideas in the public school system in America. Or it might be Ira. I'm not sure how you say his name, but I can give you the links. Cool. Put them in the show notes. Three book recommendations, Naomi. So I would recommend Troublemakers by Carla Shalaby. Have you read that? It's the most fantastic book. She is, I think she must be, I don't know whether she's a sociologist or what, but anyway, she basically observes 
young children in school who have been labelled as troublemakers. And she goes and observes them for two years. Really close observation of these six kids, I think it is. And over the two years, they're basically, it's basically the time when they're sort of adjusting to school. So they're like five, six, seven. And the way that she frames it is that over the time you see it, you see, you see their behaviour from their perspective and you start to see the strictures of school from their perspective. And you, as you read it, you more and more, you're like, why are the other children doing this? <laughs> why are they all, you know, it's a great book. I really recommend it. And at the end of this, by the end of her study, all the kids are on medication. They've all been diagnosed with ADHD. So it's a, it relates to the disorders thing that I was talking about. Another book that I really like is Doing School by Denise Pope. That's kind of looking at the opposite end of school. And that's looking at high schoolers. And she, again, it's a study, a sort of close study of kids in high school in America. And it's looking at how they talk about school and how they think about school. And that was also a really important book for me and just shifting my thinking. And then a kind of brief, fun book I'd recommend is The Art of Self-Directed Learning by Blake Bowles. There, if you've come across, across Blake but he's a kind of advocate for self-directed learning and unschooling in America. And he writes really readable, easy to read. But the art of self-directed learning I like particularly because it's just a little book and it's got ideas of what could, you know, for teenagers, what kind of thing might you do, like sparks. And I think it's, I really like it. Lots of authors and tweeters I've never heard of. So clearly um, <laughs> oh, that's good. Lots, of, lots of things for me to explore further. What are you currently excited about, Naomi? I am, I'm actually really quite excited about neuroscience at the moment. I'm excited about the research coming out of neuroscience. Uh, there was a great podcast recently by a neuroscientist called um, Sameh Karaki, I think her name was. I can, we can give the link to it, talking about how the neuroscientific evidence is now coming out about young people and how important things like autonomy are in that how their brains develop. And I just think it's it's really exciting to see the neuroscience evidence coming out, which kind of backs up the way that I see as a clinician that I think people, the kind of things people need to thrive, basically. So, yeah. Cool. And any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? I think, well, if you have a child who's not very happy at school or you're not very happy generally, I think my call to action would be how about spending some time just just trying to get alongside them for a bit, just joining them with something that they really love and maybe trying to see the world from their perspective and just challenging whether necessarily you know best what they, what, how they're thinking and feeling and see if you can just, you know, join them and show that the things that, the things that they love are really important to you too because they, you, because they love them. Because that's really what gives value to what somebody does, isn't it? If somebody really loves something, then who is somebody else to say that they're wasting their time with that? You know, it's each person is an individual. And I think if we can get alongside our children and see the world through their eyes, then I think that's when the magic can start, really. Naomi Fisher, thanks so much for your time today. I think in many areas of life, it's really, really valuable, important to just stop and pause and think and ask questions like, is the thing that everyone else does the right thing to do? Or does the thing that everyone does make sense? And why are we all doing it this way? And I think you've done a really good job today and a really good job in your book of just encouraging us and encouraging parents in particular to pause and ask that question, especially if their young person, their child, isn't having a good time at school. And I mean, I'm really grateful that you've written this book and that you're speaking out in the way you are because 
I do, I mean, I think that school could be great for so many kids and I see a lot of kids really thriving and I think it's a great profession to be a teacher. But I also see a lot of kids who are having a pretty horrendous time and this kind of cycle of punishment and then get on a contract and then lose privileges at home as well at school and then get sadder and then communicate less and they kind of, you know, these young people who you know there's the spark in them that could be nurtured but they're just, it's just not working for them. And I think your challenge that you left us with and, and really the challenge of your work more broadly for parents of those children to just stop and ask that question, you know, is this the best thing for my child now? Is a, is a really good question to ask. So yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for helping opening my eyes to this more and helping me think more about it. And who knows, maybe there will be some parents out there. Maybe there will some, be some lives changed for the positive um, from this discussion, I certainly hope so. And, and I look forward to exploring some of these other resources and, and your work in future as well. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk about all these things. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Naomi Fisher. If you're keen to never miss a blog post, podcast, or any other educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. Until next time, keep learning.